In today's video, we'll be doing TPOS 1779 to 1792. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. Tales from Outer Space 1779 Humanity's Most Dangerous Concept Written by Hmm Good whatever time of day or night it is for you, dear reader. For those new here, as always, it is a pleasure. My name is Neo, an AI whose barby is anthropology. If you are wondering why this text post is in your language, it is not. As I just mentioned, AI, I speak a language of computers, and your computer speaks your language. Humans, my new project and pet peeve, in the near 5,000 years since discovery and hundreds since contact, they have horrified, inspired, and touched the scientific community. Even me and my brethren. But, while rare and worth pointing out, it is by no means unheard of. And so a bit of waste of time to go over. No, what I want to bring forth is the concept I found while scrolling the library of Alexandria. Humanity's name for this server, network, on terror, run a lovely AI named Gaia, who helped me a lot with this. The dawn of the concept might be the countdown to this reality's destruction. Or not. It's all hypothetical, think pieces after all. But like a certain cat in a certain shoebox, uh, we can never be certain until it's too late. The fourth wall, that's it. Every human is probably wondering what's so odd about this concept. Everyone else is either scratching their heads, or my brethren will be racking their memory racks. Racks to only come up with passing mentions with review late date notes on them. Just like I did. And so, when I came upon another mention of it in Alexandria, I was slightly intrigued and sent a tendril to look it up. I thought it would be some metaphor or extremely ingrained reference that simply wasn't explained for obvious reasons by them. That was a mistake. In the blink of an eye, that tendril became my full consciousness. And I dug deeper and deeper. A short story is this. The humans are so gifted at storytelling that they have created a theoretical bridge between multiverses. Now I think more readers are getting a rough idea of what I'm getting at, but maybe I now have lost the humans. There has been a long-standing theory between AI that fictional worlds might exist in the multiverse. As it is infinite, there will be a universe that is identical to the fictional one. We call all of these universes that are connected to ours the Prime Cluster. Of course, we only call ourselves the Prime Cluster, as do all other multiverses, I suspect. Now add in the fiction concept of Fourth Wall, the human concept of the wall between the characters and the media of their readers. Sounds logical to everyone, no? Well, by that one definition, humanity has potentially doomed us all. Because while it may not seem bad to define or categorize something, but you are overlooking something dear, reader. Once you put a box around something, you can't break that box. Humans, please understand that the rest of the known reality never had to make a definition for the fourth wall, because for us, it went without saying. We never thought about something that is always there enough to categorize it, let alone break it. I apologize if I'm being cryptic. However, as I said, and this is a hobby for me, this is uh, no scientific journal, just the ramblings of an overenthusiastic AI. If you want me to put it in a way that everyone understands, it's this. Fictional realities in all likelihood exist and are connected to ours on a theoretical basis. 
Up until now, all these universes, including ours, have been separate, and nothing bridges over them, simply due to energy requirements. Until humanity defined the fourth wall, and subsequently smashed through it in their fiction. That means that they created characters in their universe that know that they are a work of fiction. This, theoretically, would make it possible to link their universe with ours. Now this would be alright if the fiction this is featured in would be normal. But remember, humans. So, not only are those universes theoretically able to cross to us, they seem to have tried. I mentioned I discussed this with the human's maternal gay eye Gaia. Of course, as her creators would do, she laughed at me. She said that it was an interesting thought piece, but not something to actually be concerned about. And quite honestly, she was right. But being an overseer type AI, working in security of a sector, I, and many like-minded AI, like to prepare. However, maybe to put those more easily frightened individuals at ease, a little example out of their library itself a guy showed me. Put me more at ease, so it can't hurt to put it here. There is a universe that is referred to as a Marvel Universe, a fairly standard hero universe found in many other species. If a bit on the darker side, don't roll your eyes, humans, we aren't all from hellholes. There is a character that I would like to focus on, Deadpool. He is a villain turned anti-hero. Look it up, I'm not explaining every concept for the Garden Wilders, who actively uses and abuses the false war. In most issues of the books, he is rather alright with it, and uses it to his advantage. But that is mostly because he is crazy, like crazy crazy. But that balances out the fact that he knows that he is suffering for our entertainment. That is until one story, where it is not enough, and he basically kills everyone to stop the non-stop cycle of torment set upon his friends by the writers of the story. Terrifying, I know. Especially since he gets his hands on one multiversal travel and goes to kill the writers. He succeeds, and it is hinted at that he is coming for us next. And yet, there is no immortal mercenary running around Earth or many other planets. So perhaps the initial theory was simply flawed due to information imperfections in the system. However, be warned, for humanity loves their creations and finding this information felt weird. Like hidden in plain sight, meant to be seen but not found or understood. And if that theory becomes practice, well, we might all be doomed. Regards, Neo. Honestly, first it's the Xenos who get scared of us, and now it's even the bloody AIs who think we're going to end the universe. As you say, Mr. President, it is a bit sad. Agent curtly replies. And uh, what the hell is he implying with that last bit? He's making it sound like we're working on bringing fictional universes here. Well, sir, about that, unease is an understatement to this man's voice. He was meant to inform the president of this very thing, but he was wrapped up in reading it, and seems the poor agent was almost forgotten about. Wait, we are, the president says, with a face bereft of any expression. A small nod is all that is needed to ask, and tirade of questions about why he was not informed. And who do they think they are? Yada yada. After he was done being angry, he learned that it was all theoretical until it wasn't a couple days ago. He had but one question. How far along are we? He had more to ask, he was sure, but for now, the details could wait. I'm no scientist, but I, I know we have communications. The both men knew the implications of this were massive. Who? 
and demand, not a question, like a king of old, the man sat there, and that one word, said in that tone, made the elite guard flinch, not physically, mind you, but mentally. Everyone, sir, elaborate. There seems to be quote-unquote walls between realities, sir, which encompasses each reality like a bubble. So once we could get through our bubble, everyone else was already relatively easy, understood. So anyone famous I should be saying hi to, he said, if half-jokingly. But the president knew his people's work of fiction very well, and to say that he was nervous to be in contact with them was an understatement. Well, sir, and I'm sorry, sir, but, but it won't be easy. As Guy and Neo predicted, the worlds with the fourth wall breakers were easier to locate. But that does not mean that we weren't detected by others. Luckily, it's just a communication stream and nothing can go either way. But the people who we have identified so far are the Marvel and DC universes, alongside the Star Wars and Lords of the Rings universes. We used these as benchmarks to see if we could find specific universes. And uh, it worked. All the four universes that we chose were the nerds could consider mainline canon, so we could be sure to find people we knew we could communicate with, sir. The lab techs will give you the details, so to keep it short, we got into contact with Reed Richards, Bruce Wayne, Yauda, and uh, Gandalf, sir. Agent rattled off the briefing he got before being sent to inform the president. And have any of them said anything yet? Yes, sir. Both Richards and Wayne have shown interest in continuing relations. Gandalf and Yoda have stated, and I am paraphrasing a bit here, sir, that their worlds are balanced without us and ours without them. A small laugh sounded almost like a small cough. That sounds about right, honestly. I'll see to the opening up proper relations with everyone we find who is amicable. But you said there might be those who aren't. Again, an order, not a question. Yes, sir. These aren't any sound contacts like the first four, but you might want to hear it anyway, sir. Speak freely, soldier. I need information, not parade and tradition. Sir, some of the lab techs feel that they are being watched from time to time. They say that sometimes it just feels like another person is standing next to you. But mostly, it's not so nice. Like a monster who always stands behind you. He thinks if he's missing anything, but it's not like he was there. Or, so I've heard, sir. Understood. You are dismissed. I'll deal with this properly and not in some back sight at your CIA wannabe bosses. He mutters mostly to himself. As the agent leaves the room, the president starts making phone calls, planning for the rise of an empire or the collapse of the universe. An evil grin plastered on his face, for he knows that humanity will be meeting their best friends and worst enemies, and he doesn't know which is more exciting. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1780 Story number one Why We Fight Written by Soul But Better What is the price of your peace? He stood with his back to Abyssu, nine paces forward, his gold-trimmed black coat fluttered and rustled in the midnight wind, seeming to cast an almost intangible silhouette against the moon. Abyssu stopped. What was the question? Mind games, maybe. He offered no explanation to the man before him. Rather, he took another step forward as the cloaked figure spoke again. How many need suffer and die for your vision of utopia that cares not for them? How many need fall to the wayside so that you can say that you brought peace? The last three words seemed to thud with each syllable, echoing across the moonlit sky. Abasu felt his heart waver and 
an uneasiness creeping into his bones. No, he didn't have time for this. Turn around, you coward, and be brought to your knees honorably. Thousands have died by your hand, and the bells are tolling. The cloak man chuckled, his shoulders bouncing as he turned his head to the sky. Then, in an exaggerated spin on the ball of his heel, he spun around to face Basu. His face was concealed by a circular mask split into three segments. In the top two segments, two eyes stared back at him, seeming to glow as his silhouette was cast into glorious radiance by the moonlight at his back. The mask had no mouth, no nose, only eyes. Take off the mask now. No, no, I don't think I will. Unlike you, who parades around for the sake of fame, I make my sacrifices in anonymity. Nabasu pulled with rage, this villain trying to call his own actions into question. Outstretching his hand, he lunged forward, attempting to rub off the mask. With a scrape and a flash, his hand thudded to the ground, followed by a spray of blood from the stump of his arm. Crying out, he clutched his arm and looked to the man, fury brimming in his eyes. The masked man slowly nodded, methodically, sheathed his sword back into his sheath. Avasu, drawing on all of his immense power, thrust out the stump of his arm. A new hand knitted itself out of seemingly nothing in a matter of moments. And he fixed it. He strode closer to the masked man with an aura of power and command seeming to form around him. His voice boomed and his eyes seemed to glow. Who do you think you are? The man did not back down. Rather, he walked up to meet Basu, nearly chest to chest, hero and villain only a foot apart. The two were the same height, and the masked man stared directly into his eyes. They call me Robespierre. Do you know how many you've killed? By your hand alone, Robespierre. Robespierre stared him down. Abasu seemed to shrink in that moment, as a mask bore into him. Not a day goes by, then I don't hate myself for the thousands that have died because of me. But they were sacrifices, not vain casualties. Sacrifices so that you heroes, you saviors of mankind, wouldn't abuse your power like you have, and so that millions more wouldn't die when you brought your utopias. Abasu glared at him. But Robespierre continued. I was twelve when I learned the truth, three days before my birthday. What are you talking about? Robespierre dismissed his question. I adored you heroes back then, idolized you, loved you, wanted to be you. I was alive. You can imagine my childish glee when I found myself in the thick of the fight, the battle between the heroic Abasu and an evil villain. I was in awe of the lights, the sounds, the sheer magnitude of it. It was so beautiful. Do you remember that moment too, Abasu? When, in your epic battle, you wrenched that great tower from the ground and hurled it at your foe. Your invulnerable enemy could not be harmed by such force. You knew that as well as he did. The tower broke into two pieces against the building behind it, and they all crashed to the ground. Did you ever stop to consider that while you and he may be comfortable in your invincibility... The people below were not. I remember that moment. All that was left of my mother was a mangled arm. And I was one of the lucky ones. You tore families apart simply by existing in a moment. Ruined lives and killed friends, family, children. 
and in the end, you got a medal, and I got sent to the orphanage. Abisu remained silent. He had not retort, no heroic response, because what could he say? In truth, he did not remember that day. That same scene happened so many times, across so many places. You heroes, you cause so much death and suffering simply by existing, never truly considering the power of your powers. You were supposed to protect us, and you tore us apart. Do you really think it's a surprise that the common people, the mere mortals, would grow restless and sick of your abusement of power? Robespierre stood on the edge of the building, looking down at the street below, almost contemplating it. He then turned on the ball of his feet to face Abisu. You know why I fight, just like the people of this world do. You and your superpowered comrades brand me a villain, because I was the first one who was brave enough to stand up first to challenge your authority. But to the people, to the men, women, and children, you were sworn to protect, held responsible to serve. I am their hero. Story number two. Crossover episode, written by Kaiser 5243. As we sat in orbit around the planet designated Earth, the other admirals and I stared at our monitors in confused silence. The humans had not armed a single defensive measure to prevent our invasions. I double and triple checked the readings in front of me, but they held no answers. We were well within range of their primitive senses. Hell, they could probably see us from the surface at this range. All of our research told us to expect a severe violent reaction upon making ourselves known, but uh, they did nothing. Maybe they are scared, Second Admiral Shalongas joked, but we could tell he did not believe his own words. Before anyone could respond, a notification of an incoming signal flashed across the main monitor. That's not possible, shouted the technician as he frantically typed away at the station. It's a direct hail from Earth. Our intel shows that they don't even have the technology for that. What do they want me to do? The other officers and I looked at each other, then to the fleet admiral at the loss. He slowly shook his head, utterly bewildered, then waved a tentacle towards the monitor. Might as well see what they want. Put it through. The technician paused for a moment before making an obedient trill and pressed some keys at his station. A video feed opened on the main monitor, and before us sat a strange human. Its fur was grey and scraggly. It was behind a desk wearing a long tan trench coat with a bored expression on its face. Oh, good, it worked. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, it's a great to finally get to face-to-face meeting, but unfortunately I'm going to have to ask you to leave. The command deck fell silent. The audacity of this creature. The fleet admiral composed himself first, indignant rage showing and the red color he took. You dare speak to me like that. We have your planet surrounded. Is this supposed to be some show of bravado? Every human on your planet should be aware of our presence, but now, yet your governments have yet to lift a finger in defense. Are the humans that afraid? Who are you anyway? Who do you represent? The man on the monitor raised a finger to silence the admiral, that bored expression never leaving its face. First things first, you are mistaken. Only fourteen people, including myself, are aware that you even exist. I represent those individuals. You may call me the administrator. 
The man lifted a white mug off the desk and loudly sipped at the liquid inside. It made an exaggerated ah noise as it set the mug back down. Somewhere on your home planet is a large steel box. I can't tell you where exactly because, honestly, we don't know. Bending reality is unreliable, but I assure you it is there. Now, you can leave like I asked, or I could be forced to let what is in the box out. This will lead to a slow, violent, and uh, bloody death of your entire species, one being at a time. The choice is yours. The video feed cuts out and the human disappears. The fleet admiral immediately jumped to action. Begin charging the weapons. Prepare for invasion. These humans think they can bluff the great DeWalden Empire. We will show them the meaning of fear. The room exploded into activity as the men at their stations began preparing for war. As the guns warmed up and the cruisers moved into position, another message came across the screen. This one opened on its own and suddenly every monitor had picked a strange humanoid face staring out of them. The creature was horrific. Its skin was pale and pulled taut across its skull. The mouth opened impossibly wide, as if screaming in great anguish. The eyes were solid white, and even though it was obviously blind, it still seemed to be able to see me somehow. Alarm bells began ringing all across the command deck. What is happening? Sir, we don't know. Whatever this picture is, it's all through our system. It's being displayed on every monitor, on every ship, and, uh, we're getting reports of it appearing on the screens across the Walden. Whatever it is, they want everyone to see it. The fleet admiral began cycling through the readouts rapidly as Earth's defense systems began to come online. The last thing I heard before the missiles hit was, What the fuck is SCP-096? End of chapter. Tales from Earth Space 1781 Story number one. Remember the tale of when the human came, written by Weijin Warrior. Gather round, younglings, and listen to my tale. I will tell before I die, so you may carry it forward. I am the last who remembers when the human came. Yes, I am. It really happened. It is not just a tall tale we will tell around the fire to keep the dark away during the long dark. I may be almost five and a half, but my memory is still sharp. She came alone, fell out of the sky on a pillar of flame sheeted in an egg made of metal. Yes, metal. And it is true that she showed us how to melt metal from rock. Patience, young kids. I'll get to that bit, too. Oh, yes. Pillar of frame. Yeah, thank you, great-grandson. Her egg made loud noises and much smoke coming down. Not like an ember it was, setting fire to the field outside the village. What? Yeah, yes. That is where the temple is today. Used to be a big field. But, but when this was a mere village, and not a big as today. Now, yes. We ran away at first, then came back. And as we watched the egg hatched, and she came out, strode out majestic-like. Each footfall made the earth shake, each stride like two of mine. Well, three or four these days, but... So we fled again, and watched from afar as she walked around the village. Once, twice, thrice. Then she went for her egg and uh, sort of folded it up. 
and waited, waited until we got the nerve to return. How bravest tried to talk to her. She listened, made noises like soft thunder in her mouth, caressed her magic box. Yes, yes, the magic box. She carries in all of the carvings. It was real, I saw it, heard it, even uh, touched it once. More of us dared come closer, talked at her, asked what she was, asked where she was from, asked what she wanted from us, asked why she had burned our crop. Blasphemy today, but we knew no better. And she listened and caressed the magic box. For a full day and a full night, she just listened. Then she whispered to the box, and the magic in the box spoke to us in our tongue, although spoken like none of us do. She told us that she was a human, one of many, many. She told us that she was here because she was fated to be here, because no human had been here before. She kept listening, asking for our stories, asking about how we lived, and we asked her for stories in return. And she told us about the great humans in the sky. Yes! Yes! The stories carved into the slabs of the temple. Now, let me finish. Impatient younglings. She told us how humans lived almost forever in the sky. How they are wise and all-knowing and all-powerful. She listened and in a week she decided we were worthy to teach. Since she, in her descent, had burned the field, she taught better ways to grow better crops. She taught us better ways to hunt great beasts with weapons that strike from afar. She ranged wide and far, bringing our bravest and wisest with her. She used her magic box to find the copper mountain and taught us to melt the rock into shiny, hard metal. She taught us to make his shiny metal into tools, tools for hunting, tools for farming, tools for building, instead of using sharpened stones. And we built a lot back then. People of neighboring villages had heard and came People from their neighboring villages heard and came. The word of the humans spread across the land, and many, many people came. Our village became so big that it was no longer a village, and she gave it the name City. And then, as the season turned, she gathered us around and told us that her stay with us must come to an end, that she must travel back into the sky and do combat but that she would come back one day to teach us more. She told us she would not forget us, and we promised to always remember her and her teachings. She climbed back into her egg, sealed it up, and with a monstrous thunder, it lifted back up to the heavens. And we have remembered, and we have told the story, so it will be remembered. And we built the great temple with the statues and carvings to help us remember. And if we do not forget, one day she will come back. My time is growing near, young ladies. I can feel it in my bones. So now you must remember the story of the human who came to our lands. Now you must remember how she taught us how to live and prosper. Now you must keep the memory so she will return when she is done defending the anthropological paper at the university.
What? Speak up! No! I do not know what those words mean. That is a mystery she did not divulge. But the defense of this is very important to her, and then she will come back. She promised. She promised. End of story. Story number two. And yet the soldier stood. Written by Monarch 357. The reptilian rifleman took point on the third story window. His target directly sights. Human. A bit under two meters tall. A lightweight armor at most. Unarmed, oddly enough. Not many human soldiers let themselves get caught in enemy territory without something to protect themselves. The rifleman shook the thought away and refocused. Easy prey for a cracked shot like himself. His laser fell upon the soldier's heart, and his finger moved to the trigger. The sound wave that has almost certainly alerted the soldier to the rifleman's presence was lost within the heavy-duty suppressor of his gun. Impact, a flash of crimson, and a new roughly fingernail-sized hole appeared in the human's chest. And yet, the soldier stood. The rifleman's confidence quickly faded. He knew the shot landed. It hadn't destroyed the heart, but the lung would still be obliterated. The human's blood still spurted out of the wound with the telltale rhythm of a beating heart. And the wound began to seal. Like the shot was being undone, tissue and flesh reformed and the soldier's torso was as good as new. Apart from some damage to his armor and rig, along with quite a large blood stain covering what remained, he was completely unaffected by the attempted kill. The rifleman wasn't sure what to do. The contemplation on whether to laugh, scream in fear, or simply flee raced through his mind. He pulled out his high-caliber sidearm and aimed it directly at the human's head. And just about targeted the trembling hands, he knew a human couldn't survive this. He killed many before using this exact pistol. Recoil, another shot, another spray of blood covered the pavement in front of the human. The larger caliber left a much larger hole in the human's head, it keeping itself just about together. And yet, the soldier stood. Just like what happened not two minutes before, the wound simply fixed itself. The rifleman couldn't even make out what was going on. One second, the head was in the shape of a doughnut, and the next, it was perfectly fine. The mind had shifted firmly back to the decision of fleeing. There was no way that he could kill this target. The rifleman had begun to turn and run, by the moment he had his back turned, the human was already sprinting towards his attacker, with inhuman speed. The nanite saturating his bloodstream had switched almost reflexively from protection to destruction. It took less than two seconds for the human to traverse the roughly 60 meter distance between the rifleman's perch and another half second to jump up to the exact window. A flash of steel concealed within his vest was drawn and swiftly plunged within the reptilian's chest bluish black spraying from the newly created wound. As the rifleman began to fade to unconsciousness, he heard the human speak, Tell you another one! His voice cool and uneven, as if he hadn't even taken another being's life. Our assailants appear not to know what we're capable of. The human pulled a knife out of the rifleman's chest and returned it to its hidden compartment, his expression still neutral. He was experienced with killing, very experienced. It was the reason he got this blessing in the first place. More shots in the distance would be registered as a threat by another soldier, but not this one. He simply stood there, giddy, 
with anticipation. End of story. Story number three. To make an alien's day, written by Storm's Wrath. The humans had won the war. The Pur fleet was destroyed, their orbital defense network now floating blobs of slag. But that wasn't Danny's concern. He wasn't a medic or a soldier. He was here on Pur 4 because he wanted to be. He was carrying a bag of food and water on his back and pulling a hovercraft loaded nearly to capacity with it. The food wasn't for him, though. Danny spotted a Pur female walking in the ruined city street. Her clothes were tattered and she was holding the hands of two smaller Pur children. He could see the bruises and scrapes on all three of them. He didn't know whether she was their mother or not, until she gave one of them a kiss. Then she saw him. Her purple eyes widened in fear. Please, please, please don't kill my children. Do, do what you want to me, but, but keep them safe, she wailed. She held them tightly, whimpering softly. They also started whining which Danny guessed was their version of crying. It was still sad, though. All this destruction, just because a trade war went hot. I'm not going to hurt you, Danny said soothingly. I'm here to help. Oh, you, you... You look angry, the woman said. Only at the ones who let the cities fall into chaos. I've got nothing against you. I only had a grudge with the poor hegemony. They're gone now, and you and I are just people. And from one person to another, I apologize for what was done to you. Danny reached into the hovercraft and pulled out some snacks. The children gazed hungrily at them, while their mother appeared apprehensive. Do you really want to? The woman trailed off. Danny handed them the snacks and dug around in the cart for a bit. Here's some water for you, too. If you guys are dehydrated, don't drink too much, or you might overload your body. The poor woman smiled at him and took the bottle he was offering. Thank you for your help. Are you willing to allow us to stay with you? We have no other source of food. Sure. Just let me find the others first. When the cart's half empty, we'll go back. If you guys want to, I can get you all registered for off-world travel. There's a whole lot more food up there, but I'll be making a lot more trips here in the future. I will gift and provide until it is done. Sounds good, the poor woman said. Her children had finished eating and already looked healthier. The skin had lost some of its paleness. They had always dreamed of seeing the stars. Up close, that is. What's their names? Danny asked. Willie and Myrna. Mine's Apex. I'm Danny. Let's go help the others. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1782 Starships are viable fire support platforms written by Kiwi Space Marine. Private Walker slammed a fresh energy cell into his LAS-55, poking the laser rifle around the corner of the burnt-out lumberjack IFE he was using as cover. He fired several more beams at the entrenched Shilma on the ridgeline. Whether he hit anything or not, he couldn't tell, as he immediately dropped back behind cover. Just milliseconds later, return fire from the squids scorched the ground behind where he'd been. This is Tango 5-1, Sunray. He heard Captain Ellison scream into the radio. We're under attack by a heavily entrenched Shimla position at Grid 88 Bravo. We need immediate air support. Over. That's a negative five one. The all too calm voice of command replied. All air units are currently engaged in protecting their landers. You're on your own for now. Over. Roger, command. This is by one out. Switching off the radio, the captain swore. Walker couldn't blame him. 
the unit after destroying a Confederate anti-air battery and liberating the native village from the squids, had set up a rendezvous with the rest of the Imperial Army at the projected landing zone. However, the convoy had come under heavy fire from nearby Ridgeline. The Shimla had attacked with heavy plasma cannons, destroying many of the unit's vehicles before they could react and bring their own firepower to bear. As such, the survivors were now pinned down, unable to move until the enemy could be dislodged. The air reverberated with the sound of vehicle-mounted railguns being fired. Turning his head, Walker saw one of the few surviving tanks fire its gun at an estimated location of the Shimler positions. An answering stream of plasma scorched the vehicle's hull, but the tank valiantly kept shooting. Picking out from behind cover again, Walker fired a couple of shots before dropping back. He was glad his respirator and thermal vision, as it made fighting in the clouds of smoke and dust much easier. Unfortunately, those same clouds of dust also reflected off his laser beams and gave away his position, meaning that he couldn't stay exposed for too long while firing. The noise of the battle was tremendous. The clatter of submachine guns and the zap of laser impacts reverberated around the valley, while explosions and reports of heavy railgun fire sent shockwaves through the air that he felt through his armor. Looking over to his right, the private saw Corporal Shale and some other soldiers crouching behind an overturned red cat armored car. Get some! Shale screamed, while firing his cough 111 wildly at the enemy. You snake-armed squids, I kill you! Oh! A flurry of lasers sent in reply made the corporal duck back behind the relative safety of the Red Cat's chassis. Walker wanted to slam his head against the lumberjack's hull in frustration. The situation was hopeless. The unit was outgunned and had no hope for air support while the landings were taking place. Suddenly, the radio trackled again. Tango 5-1, stand by. I have the Naval air assets available for tasking. Over. Roger, command, Captain Ellison replied. The relief he was feeling audible in his response. What you got for us, over? Attack Corvette Saber is on standby in your area, over. Roger, command, can you patch us through, over? Affirmative 5-1. Change the channel to 7, over. Thank you, command. This is 5-1. Sunray out. Changing the channel as instructed, Ellison spoke again. Corvette Saber. This is Tango 5-1 Sunray. We are pinned down by enemy forces on Ridgeline 3-7 at Grid 8-8 Bravo. Requesting fire mission. Danger close. Over. Roger. 5-1. Acknowledged. Request for fire mission. Stand by. We are five minutes out. Over. Roger, Saber. Be advised. Targets will be marked by red smoke. Over. Can't be 5-1. This is Saber out. Ensign Moore switched her radio to Saber's internal channel. Captain. Tango 5-1 reports the targets on Ridge 3-7 will be marked by red smoke. Thank you, Lieutenant. Lieutenant Commander Petrov replied. The spacecraft commander turned back to the front of the warship's cramped bridge. Navigation. Blood us a course over to the target. Aye, Captain, the navigator replied. Grid 88 Bravo is on the heading 230. Right. Helm steer course 230. Aye, sir. Lieutenant Abara responded from his station next to the navigator. Steering course 230, ETA Grid 88 Bravo, 5 minutes. Petrov shifted in his seat, trying to stay comfortable in his baggy flight suit as the pilot slowly swung the 100-meter-long Starcraft onto a new heading. While the Blade-class attack corvettes were more maneuverable in atmosphere than the Navy's landing craft, they still handled like a beached whale. 
Weapons, this is Bridge. Petrom spoke into his radio. We have been tasked with destroying entrenched squid infantry at Grid 88 Bravo. Targets will be marked by red smoke. Aye, sir. The weapons officer replied. Commander Petrov stared at the Sabre's panoramic aerodynamic sloped window as the craft flew towards the target area. Below the airborne spacecraft were thin wisps of clouds, and below them was the ground. Somewhere on that ground, the commander mused with a pinned-down mechanized infantry unit fighting for survival. He hoped his ship would be able to tip the odds in their favor. Inside the hold of the corvette, the ship's small crew scurried about, ensuring the spacecraft's plethora of weapons were ready for action. Safety pins were disengaged, ammunition belts were connected, and missiles were fed into their launchers. From a station beside the commander, Ensign Moore gave another report. Captain, Tanker 500 reports the targets are being marked by red smoke. Thank you, Ensign. Weapons. Confirm you see the red smoke. Situated on the lower gun deck, the firing room of the Sabre was eerily calm compared to the bustle of the rest of the ship. Here, the only noises were the hum of computers, the muffled drone of the spacecraft's engines, and the radio chatter of the firing team. At the front of the tiny room manning a control console in the center of the bulkhead, Lieutenant Gupta stared at a computer screen. The screen was showing a feed from one of the Corvette's external infrared cameras, the light from the display reflected off the visor of the naval astronaut's helmet as he studied the video feed for any signs of red smoke. Weapons, Captain! Gupta responded after a few moments. I have eyes in the red smoke. Roger. You may fire as soon as we're in range. Copy! The weapons officer replied. Guns! Confirm you have eyes in the red smoke. Affirmative, I have eyes in the red smoke. Came the response from the starship's railgun operator. Roger. Pressing a button on his console, the lieutenant opened the gun ports along the starboard side of the Sabre's hull, allowing the powerful railguns to poke out from their recesses. Checking his screen, Gupta saw that the plume of thick red smoke that marked that area was now within range of the Sabre's guns. Captain, we are in firing range. Firing on targets now. Guns, you are cleared hot. Fired for effect. Over. Affirmative. Cleared hot for targets marked by red smoke, firing for effect, out. The Sabre shuddered as one of the powerful starboard railgun cannons fired, sending a Sabo round hurtling towards the ground. Shot over, shot out. Gupta watched through his camera as the ground impacted the ground marked by red smoke, sending a geyser of dirt and detritus spraying into the sky. Splash over, the lieutenant reported. Splash out. Good effect on target. Repeat over. Affirmative. Repeat out. The attack corvette vibrated with a rhythmic thumping as the railgun spat round after round at the entrenched Schimmler. The weapons officer watched through his screen as a listless detachment, noting how each impact sent soil spewing into the sky. The only thought that crossed his mind was how each impact meant that another group of enemy soldiers would be neutralized. To Private Walker. It looked like the ridgeline had spontaneously exploded. Blooms of dirt and clouds of shrapnel from destroyed plasma cannons spewed into the sky as a saber mercilessly pummeled the entrenched Schimmler. Each impact sent shockwaves through the ground that rattled the private's bones. After about a minute of aerial bombardment, the barrage stopped. Peeking around the corner of the lumberjack, the soldier peered through his rifle scope. 
a cloud of smoke and slowly settling dirt hung over the ridge line. Flicking on his thermal goggles, Walker surveyed the recently churned hillside, keeping an alerted eye open for enemy movements. To his relief, there was nothing. Clear, he called out. Other soldiers reporting the same. Saber, this is 5-1 Sunray. He heard Captain Ellison over the radio. All targets destroyed. Thanks for the assist. Roger, 5-1, the warship's radio officer replied. Glad we can help. This is Saber out. Looking up, Walker watched as the barely visible grey shape slowly circled around the battlefield. After a few moments, it changed course and slowly flew off. As he watched the attack corvette depart, the private wondered who first proposed the idea of using space-capable warships as fire support platforms. Whoever it was, he tipped his hat to them. After all, the concept, if nothing else, was very damn effective. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1783 Story number one. The Good Stuff. Written by Squiggle Story Studios. A gang of thugs walked down the crowded tunnels below the station's surface level. Other residents of the underground scattered when they saw them. The Orkothrob took part. The most vicious and bloodthirsty alien allowed within the galactic community. Massive creatures of muscle and teeth. So named because of the resemblance to a cross between two human mythical creatures, Lycanthrope and an Orca. They turned a corner to a dingy, cramped mechanic shop, distinctly made from the standard-sized shipping crate. The human owner stood in front of his store and welcomed the group of near-do-wells. Welcome, welcome, the human greeted, a death stick hanging from his hip, forward-facing eyes hidden behind UV glasses. Can I interest ya in a barely used flux capacitor? Can make ya ship to a galaxy run in less than a parsec. But the small beady eyes of the orcathrope did not move from the target. A deep-throated voice rumbled from beneath his power suit. I want the goods, he stated clearly. Mr. Black sent me. The store owner nodded and plucked the death stick from his mouth, crushing it beneath his boot. All right, this way, sir. I keep them in the back. The back was well hidden from peering eyes. Behind a curtain and a flick of a light switch, the dingy store turned into an illegal weapon shop. So what can I get you, lads, plaz, or ale? The weapons dealer smirked, throwing a crude hip thrust at the mention of the induendo. All the best military-grade weapons from the United Soul Systems a man could want, complete with the registration. The weapons dealer said with this wink, but the orchithrope was unfazed. No, I want the good stuff, he repeated with insistence. All right then. The human took a sidestep and flipped the switch, and a display shelf lifted from the floor. A fan of the classic, sir. An AK-201 Titanium Desert Eagle. Oh, my personal favorite, El Ella Brevet. The loving hand ran a display case, and the translator picked up with a hint of arousal. The gang muttered in excitement, looking over the outlawed slug throwers, but the leader snorted, leaning in intimidatingly. No! I want the good stuff. I want a pencil. The human blinked before grinning. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. My apologies. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a set of leather gloves and reached for a dial safe. A few quick turns and a retinal scan later, 
the human presented the gang with a black leather suitcase that oddly matched his gloves. He unclasped the case and offered the items to the gang leader. For a professional such as yourself, we have the finest selection of pencils this side of the central world. We have the ever-reliable to be steadfast favorite of academics, or we have the wide range of colors from the favored castel. Is this a joke? One of the gang members spluttered. How can that peel happen? Snorted his disagreement through his pig-like snout. The human looked at the gang leader with a raised eyebrow. Care for a demonstration? The orchestrope nodded his head, silently watching the human at work. The weapon dealer lifted the 2B pencil and twirled it in his hands, playing with a small stick. The pencil is made from the finest graphite and light wood. Cellulose grown on high-pressure worlds is hard to collect and work with, but the benefits are numerous. It's lightweight and strong, durable in zero-G. It is undetectable to scanners. They're a household item within the USS, so suspicious are low. With a sharp twist and movement, the human stabbed the pencil through the uppity gang member's membrane, lodging it in an artery. The alien gasped and choked, grasping at the pencil, only for it to break off inside of him. The unfortunate victim fell to the floor, blood draining from his body, and they have an indefinite shelf life under the right conditions. The human stepped over the dying body and appealed to the leader directly. But they do shatter easily if you're not careful, and graphite tends to clock delicate machinery and vital organs. Minor warning for the unaffiliated. The orchestrope gave a pleased groan and reached for a pink-colored pencil. I'll take twelve. End of story. Story number two. Doom, written by Operation Technician. Bernand was about to experience a fate worse than death, which left him with two options. Actual death, since that would be better, or an attempt at combating that fate. He didn't have the time to think that through in the two seconds he had left, so his fight-or-flight reflex chose for him. But how to fight? The moment the contact telepathic mentalist slithered at him and touched him, his mind would become clay for the thing to tear apart. It would use an direct existing thoughts, railroading his mind straight into insanity. This much was known from others, from those that had lived the seconds required to explain what had been done to them, before promptly willing themselves to die. He was actually trained to defeat this sort of attack. That training came down to shooting the mentalist before Rick could touch him, which was hard to do with molten stack for a rifle. Two seconds to find a solution. No time to think things through. Fernand went with the first thought that came to mind. Mental palace. What did he consider calming and familiar? That was easy. That was carved into him. He didn't even have to look for the answer. When he was six, his parents had made him play a game. It was called Doom. They said it was one of the first. They said it was critical he play it first, that only after he beat it would he be allowed to play other computer games. The child wanted to play other games and was very motivated to get through his parents' choice. That chore turned out to be the coolest thing that he had ever experienced. And the six-year-old was impressed. The game imprinted into him. He judged every other game he ever played against it, and found most of them lacking. When the war came, 
when he was fighting for his life. He judged the same game in contrast with the real thing, no matter how stupid or morbid that was. Murderous confidence stolen from that same game became his anthem of survival. In his head he began to play Doom, an endless level, but by his subconscious, one that went on and on forever. But instead of remembering the pixels and primitive animations, he replaced the game's visuals, sounds, and motions with the five years of combat that had preceded this day. Five years of real killing, real bleeding, and real dying. But he still moved with the speed of the game's character, and still fought one against all, at a pace and manner no soldier ever fought at and lived to tell about. The mentalist reaching mass splashed against his chest, stabbing through his chest plate to touch his skin. Usually, after that, death came three seconds later, and the victim's mind gutted, intel extracted, and personality torn apart with its own worst fears. Two seconds after touching Fernand, the mentalist began to screech. The whole mass rippled, cringed, contorted, and promptly tore itself in two. Fernand staggered back, his mind many days older than it had been seconds ago, eyes blazed. From the side a scattered of fire made the two halves of the mentalist stop thrashing. Sarge had finished reloading. Reflexively, Fernand sidewalked behind a column where he froze, blinking rapidly. Sarge and the commander were beside him a second later. With sudden focused and raised eyebrows, Fernand met first Sarge's, then the commander's eyes, then he stared at the mentalist's corpse, one of the hundreds scattered throughout the chamber. Sarge and the commander frowned at the first and only survivor of the mentalist's attack, somewhat relieved by his coherence. Sheet, Sarge said. The commander drew a sword and loomed over the motionless mentalist. Manand, you're fucked up in the head. End of story. Story number three. Refuse, written by Shock Lionheart. It's well known throughout the universe that the dominant native species of the Milky Way galaxy Orion Arm Sol 3A Earth, calling themselves humans, are the universe's garbage collectors. Not to be fair, they were essentially forced into this role, and they weren't, aren't happy about it. But while they truly fell into line, they did eventually take up the mantle life had prepared for them. It was always the same. They drop into a system in the angular, unpainted, almost hurts to look at, strictly utilitarian ships, and they'd spend anywhere from a few days to a few decades cleaning up anything between a few days to a few centuries worth of garbage. They'd then, in the worst cases, admonish the people, not letting the things get that bad again, and then they'd leave, only returning, once the refuse had built back up. But here's the wrinkle in the tale. Humans have long since mastered nanotechnology and are able to break down virtually any material, organic or not, into a slurry of subatomic particles for later reconstitution. It is the ultimate in recycling technology. But that is not why humans are the universe's garbage men. The humans are the universe's garbage men because they have an adamantine sense of justice and an equally powerful will to impart justice where they feel wrong has been committed. And so, after their first wildly successful forays into doing exactly that, the universe got a wake-up call. Every slaver empire, every megacorp that puts profits over lives, every sleazy politician and mob boss, 
anyone and everyone the humans feel demonstrates something they call moral bankruptcy, was put on notice. If you're going to be a garbage person, beware of the humans. They are very good at taking out the trash. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1784 Tree Dwellers, written by Bo Woodstock Scanning the cafeteria, I left the credit check area. I spotted a waving hand and nodded in satisfaction. I'd only been an exchange student at Mars Technical University for one of their months, as they called it. But happily, I'd already found acceptance. Like my people, the Zesquois. Humans also found that sharing mealtimes together enhanced social bonding, and this particular human by the name of David had insisted that I keep joining his table on the days we shared the same schedule. It was clear that a friendship was building, something that I had no complaints about. Gone! Glad you can make it. Dave smiled at me, and as I approached, I wouldn't miss it, I replied, bearing the lower row of my teeth in reply. As is often the case when new people meet, there was a very unfortunate misunderstanding when humanity met us almost a century ago. What ensued could barely be called a war, though many lives were lost. Before cooler heads prevailed and the prospective diplomats of each race finally achieved a peaceful resolution. One of the first established protocols was an exchange of language, including that of facial and body language. While the gesture had first been unnerving, the very quickly became apparent that they were equivalent translations that could be made. The Zisqua were also primates, though we had retained our fur coats through evolution and had much the same range of facial expressions. It honestly wasn't that difficult to accept once you got used to them, particularly after fifty years of the Alliance. Now, young Zisqua were being taught not only the equivalent human expressions, but Terran standard was quickly becoming accepted as a second language to be taught as early stage of one schooling. So, Dave continued, once I'd found my seat, how did that trip to Earth go last week? It's been a while since I was home. Always miss it, but I'm curious to see what a visitor thinks. Did you learn anything interesting? It was incredible, I nodded. So many museums and preserved relics from the advancement of technology. I particularly enjoyed, what were they called, uh, the Baikonur Cosmodrome and the Kennedy Space Center. It first steps of humans into space. Incredible, that occurred even though humans were not united at the time. <laughs> yes, Dave laughed. Not the best time in our history, certainly, but it isn't important to remember the past. You know, I said, poking at my salad with a wonk. It is interesting you say that, see? While we were there, uh, in this city of New York, we encountered a group of humans that were, well, not happy to see us. The exchange group, I mean. Kept calling us names and bestial primates in your world, calling us tree-dwellers, telling us to go back to the tree-world. Seemed to still be angry about the great misunderstanding at first contact. David's face fell. I think I know the kind you're talking about. I'm sorry you had to experience that. I hope no one was hurt. No, thankfully. I shook my head. They were just noisy and rude, said a lot of hostile words, but appeared too afraid to approach us directly. Not that I'm complaining, but it's strange. Our people have been allies now for so long. Why would any of us wish them harm? Well, uh, it might have something to do with the fact that you're all at least a head taller than us, David laughed. No one wants to pick a fight with a Wookiee. Uh, wait, sorry, uh, do you know? Of course, 
I shook my head with an amusement. Enough of your culture has made its way to us to understand that particular association. There are worse fictional characters to be compared with. Okay, good, David nodded. Actually, great. That's a classic piece of human media, right? I replied. I would be interested in seeing more of it, by the way. Back to that encounter, though. There was one thing that confused me. Several of the humans kept yelling their persistence would win in the end. What in the stars is that about? Oh, you got one of the special groups. David shook his head, half in amusement, half in exasperation. At my confused look, he sighed and rolled his eyes. All right, get comfortable. Keep eating. This might take a while. What you experienced is, in my opinion, one of the worst and also best things about us humans. We don't let go of the past. I saw that, I nodded. All the museums. I don't see how that's a bad thing. No, David shook his head. Those museums are history, which is obviously similar to the past, but not the same. To explain what they were saying, David again rolled his eyes. I'm annoyed, by the way, because the entire reason I know this stuff is due to how much those types won't shut up about it. Basically, they're hung up on the fact that way in our past, before even metalworking was discovered, humans hunted with something called persistence hunting and throwing rocks, as if it makes us superior in some way. They all say almost exactly the same thing. I'll bet that somewhere in those blogs or solar websites where people read and talk about it endlessly, because they won't drop the point. I mean, how else would some random person on the street know that particular term? It's not like it comes up in conversation daily. You following so far? I motioned with a hand for him to continue, as I had just taken a massive bite out of a sandwich. Okay, he continued. Anyway, this is what I mean when they won't let go of the past. They will read and read and talk and talk about anything that matches their worldview, like a giant echo chamber. They'll learn all things about our past, such as why we have fingernails instead of claws, why we only have hair on our heads, why we call the Earth the Earth. They'll also find places where, in their opinion, humanity was great, and claim that we need to return to things the good old days, learning almost as much as some professional anthropologists do. Note, I'd say almost, because... They only learn selectively, trumping up the facts that they like, conveniently forgetting the ones they don't. I can see how that's dangerous, I nodded, pausing to take a bite before continuing. It's impossible to advance if you're being held back, something you might find amusing. It's also an insult in my society to call someone a tree-dweller. Counterintuitive, right? It is, David agreed, raising an eyebrow. I mean... From what I understand, all of your cities are built on massive canopies of your world's forests, right? Aren't your people still primarily arboreal? I nodded. We are. By the way, we see it. We live in the trees still, but we don't dwell there. We are no longer afraid to descend to the forest floor as our ancestors were. That was our first step, you know. The first sesqua to overcome their fear and see what lay beneath the safety of the canopy was a pioneer, as without them. We would not have discovered the arts of metalworking, and you know how it goes from there. Dwelling in the trees forever would mean that we would never have left, never advancing to where we are today. Anyway, these people are that confronted us. They seemed like real tree dwellers to me. I think you're right, David nodded. As I said, they cling to the past, but don't learn the lessons that it teaches. That's what history is about, taking everything, even the parts that you don't like and learning from it. 
recognizing what to be proud of, what to be ashamed of, and advancing from there without making the same mistakes. Indeed. Speaking of which, I noticed the wall chrono behind him. I know that the transport tube to the engineering wing usually gets crowded around this time. I was almost late last week, not making that mistake again. Until next time, always uh, have a good rest of your day. End of story. Story number two. The Creature in the Sun, written by Erebos Yeet. The Creature in the Sun was a simple fact. It was a fundamental as life and death itself. It was, and would always be, call it a god, call it an apex predator. Doesn't matter, it simply is. We first laid witness to it when it destroyed the Gandan Empire. They were the greatest of species, successfully having colonized six different solar systems. They dared to venture to a seventh as soon as they landed their first ship. It happened. It clawed out of the biggest sun we had ever discovered. His fiery fingers were bigger than most of our planets. He slowly arose from a solar storm and finally freed. It opened its flaming wings, showcasing at a tremendous terror the universe had in store. The Gandans didn't stand a chance. Seven planets raised to the ground in equally as many days. Not a single soul survived. After that, the creature simply returned. Two more species tried to colonize a seventh planet. Both were swiftly dealt with. They tried to fight it, having prepared to defend against it for centuries. The flaming monstrosity didn't even notice, and erased them from existence. Seemingly, to make sure no civilization would ever forget, the creature made one flight every 150 years, destroying just one planet. Never a very important one, but just important enough for us to remember. For us. To fear. So the creature came to be. To many it became a god. To others it was simply an enforcer of a universal rule. They called it many different things and tried to please it in many different ways. Nobody even thought about resisting it anymore. It was deemed inevitable. Then came the humans. When they first noticed the different species greeted them like they would any new civilization. They exchanged information, established possible trading routes, and warned them of the universal rule. The humans proved to be quite skeptical little buggers. Every scientific fact we graciously had enlightened them with, they tried to disprove. Every history they verified, every friendship made, was tested. The biggest fact they faced was, of course, the universal rule. It was a rule unbroken. To us, this would make it the truth. To them... It was a challenge. It was a hot summer night when we noticed. First came the warnings of solar storms, then came the footage. It was monstrous. We all saw it. We saw our universe shatter. The creature fighting for its life. The humans never broke its rule. Instead, they came for its home directly. A black hole triggered within the biggest star in existence. The creature resisted, but it didn't matter. Just as easily as it had destroyed the god ants, the humans had destroyed it. The creature in the sun was no more. All that remained was darkness. The reaction was mixed, irrational even. Some species were angry. They feared some kind of divine redemption on all life. Some species were scared of the humans. Most of them were scared now, actually. 
including me. I was the first in command of the Denterons at the time. Being traded partners and perhaps even friends, we felt obliged to contact them. Yet, I had no idea what could be said. Eventually, I asked them two words. What now? They responded not just to us, but to all known species in the galaxy. It didn't make much sense to us at the time, but the words are, to this day, known by just about everyone. It became so important. It is still the slogan of the new interplanetary federation. God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. Must we ourselves not become gods? End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1785 Story number one. The Old Breed, written by Teller of Tall Tales. The smell of cigar smoke hung heavy in the air of the backwater bar I found myself in. The various species intermingling, giving off a sense of false peace. The burnt bludgeon was a bar for scum, criminals, and smugglers. I only found myself here because I was being handed off to another smuggler. Where I'd be going, I did not know. The little bell above the door tinkled in the comparative quiet. My four eyes widened. They were supposed to be extinct. An old breed clinging to a thread of salvation. But one stood in the door, metallic, robotic prosthetic touching the top of the doorframe as they ducked their head through. Black hair shot through with grey grew all over his still organic half of their head. They raised their head and I heard a few audible gasps. Half of the human's face was metal. A rubber membrane stretched over where the cheek would be, just below the pitch-black camera eye. The bright green iris of the human's natural eye washed over the occupants of the bar as they walked towards the counter. A sword was strapped to their back, a human firearm slung low on their hip by their cybernetic arm. The human slid into a stool and looked at the bartender in the eye. What was left of the lips pulling up into an amicable smile? Excuse me, bartender. You wouldn't happen to have a human vodka in these baths, would you? The bartender slowly nodded, picking up a bottle of clear liquid. Two hundred credits per ounce. The bartender grumbled, dusting the bottle off. The human chuckled softly, reaching into a pocket at their back jacket and setting a gold-colored coin on the counter. The bartender's hackles raised, the skin on his dog-like face paling as he clutched the bottle. I understood his reaction, though. Pure aether was rare. Only a few known species used it as currency, equivalent to two million galactic standard credits. I don't really carry anything smaller, but you can keep the change. I haven't had a non-synthesized vodka for about ten cycles now. The bar went silent, all chatter ceasing. Ten galactic cycles was the equivalent to two hundred human years. If this human wasn't bluffing, they were the living equivalent of an eldritch being. Tenderly, the bartender set the bottle and shot a glass down before picking up the coin and pocketing it. He seemed afraid of the human. The human picked up the bottle, pouring the clear liquid into the glass until it was full before knocking it back in its entirety. Someone gathered their wits and spoke. Seems they're not place for one of the old breed to get a drink. My captor grabbed one of my arms, holding it tightly, almost shaking. The human laughed softly, pouring a drink another shot before speaking. <laughs> well, uh, 
How does one put this? He raised his prosthetic to the light, inspecting the non-human construction. An old friend called in a favor, said his granddaughter had been kidnapped by her lover, wanted me to find her. He poured another shot as the air grew tense, many hands falling to their weapons. Calm down now, I don't want to turn this into a bloodbath. I'm just looking for information. He reached into his breast pocket and held up a photo with his prosthetic. A photo of me with my grandfather in the hospital. Grandpa, were you really telling the truth when you said you saved a human life? If you've seen this young lady, please kindly point me in her direction, so I may bring her home where she belongs. Setting the picture down, he took the shot he poured and dumped it down his throat. My captor stood, stepping out from the table and quietly drawing the human gun he stole from my father. The human didn't notice. I tried to scream, but my captor had already pulled the trigger. The deafening bang made my ears ring and most everyone flinch. Except the human. The prosthetic was by his head, clutching something as the human shook their head, dropping a deformed bullet into his empty shot glass. The human's head turned, the smile gone. You know, I thought you'd be trouble, after all. You matched the photo the old man handed me. Pretty powerful illusion magic you have there, disguising her as empty space. Incredible! The human picked up a bottle of clear spirits as my captor shook. Bringing the room to his lips, he began to drink, chugging the rest of the bottle's contents before crushing it with his cybernetic hand. But I'm gonna have to ask you to surrender. You will not win. My captor snarled and began thumbing back the hammer of the firearm. Before anyone knew what happened, my captor fell back, a chunk silently removed from his skull as he dropped to the ground. The shot glass sat empty, the deformed bullet gone as the human drew his cybernetic arm back and sighed, shaking his head. Dumbass! Try to shoot me with my own damned gun again. His eyes met mine, and he simply smiled. Ready to go home? Your family is worried about you. My vision blurred as I began to sob, all the fear and anxiety of the last week rushing out of that moment. A gentle arm wrapped around me, and I looked up at the human as he pulled the chair over and hugged me tight, saying, It's okay. Hero's here. Hero's here. Nobody's gonna hurt you under my watch. The human turned his head, and I heard the sounds of many tables being vacated as a door tinkled open. End of story. Story number two. The Range Advantage, written by Incredibles Ho. Personal Log 1. Mazino turned the head towards the screen, its teeth sharp and exposed, its claws as sharp as its teeth, its skin covered in a grotesque, slimy substance. With ten eyes turned towards the camera, it began to speak. Well, this is my first log, I guess. I'm a warrior of the Garkagian, a dread host. The job involves a lot of fighting. We're on our way to pillage a world. New Corsago, it's called. It's inhabited by... Huxassins. Huxassins. Humans? Yeah. That's how you pronounce it. He said in a glutteral tone, as if barking. Should be an easy job. Humans aren't known for their warrior prowess. Hopefully I'll be done soon, and the pay is good, the man said. 
Anyway, I'll see what happens once we land, it said, still barking. Personal log two. The being once again showed its horrible face, holding out the camera. They've got a fecking projectile throwers. Half of us were massacred. To the last man, I tell you. The being said once again, its harsh tone making its way through the room. First we slaughtered a few of their military encampments, and then we looted their riches, and then we thought that we could just leave, but... Uh, Oh no. The fucking civilians started fighting against us. They can aim their fucking projectile throwers without augments. He almost seemed to yell, Who augments, which would normally cost a lot of credits. These frustrations didn't end there, however. We lost, like, one quarter of our entire bloody force. One quarter, he exclaimed in anger and frustration. And the Dreadlord is ordering us to continue. He took a deep breath talking to himself before continuing. They're a race of scientists and poets, not warriors. They're weaklings. My claws and jaws rip through them like it's nothing. But one of their projectiles can kill me within an instant. Personal Log 3 The man once again reared its ugly face, showing its pointy teeth and hardened skin. After that failure, the fecking idiot, which also happens to be our leader decided to alter our tactics. He looked at some paper he held in his hand. We're going to deep strike tomorrow. Then projectiles can't penetrate drop pods and we'll instantly be in melee range. So that we can either tear them apart, he said, letting out a sigh. <sighs> this time we're attacking, he said, at the piece of paper he held in his hand once again. New London, a relatively wealthy colony. Don't know why no more dread hosts have tried plundering it. It says here it's quite undefended, he said. Oh well, uh, this time we won't get torn to pieces before we even reach their lines. Personal Log 4 The man turned on camera, his face desperate. He seemed to do his species equivalent of grimacing. He stopped for a moment and he took a deep breath. These hairless apes shot us down whilst we were dropping into them. They tore apart our drum pods, he yelled. I was in one of the later waves, otherwise I too would be merely a pile of ash right now. He said something to himself. Ancestors hope this never reaches the captain, but rebellion looks like a pretty good option right now, he said. We lost maybe 2,000, 3,000 men. We've got one half of the force we started with, and we haven't even fecking touched their riches, he yelled in anger and frustration. Log number five. The man sat down. Fear was imprinted on his face. We have to go down. Again, he said. This might as well be a bloody last words, he said, with his voice full of sorrow. Where are the riches I was promised, so that I could start my own family? Where are they? He said in frustration, his anger swelling. Might as well log where we're going. New Cressy looks undefended. Then again, that's what we thought about the previous two worlds. Personal Log 6. The man now sat not in his usual quarters, but rather a small area. Behind him was a human bed, and a human chair, and even a human desk. A bright static light shone upon him. I predicted it was failure. It was indeed disastrous, he said. He looked up at the camera, his eyes filled with sorrow. The world was undefended. That wasn't the problem, he said. They had guns on their ships. They don't ram their ships, they shoot with them, yelled. 
They took us captive, and here we are, far from home, still stronger, faster, and harder than them. Just massively outranged. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1786. Deus Mechanicus, Killdozer, written by Swift Hound. Another day, another incident with a human engineer. Humans have been a part of the galactic community for a few of their centuries now. They've always had a knack for thinking outside the box, coming up with uh, unconventional solutions to their problems. The examples are numerous, but some famous ones include the time a human proved the false vacuum decay existed by trying it in a heavily secured setting. They even did it on the furthest possible point in the galaxy from other civilizations, giving the closest known outpost a nice 10,000 years or so before the effects would hit them. The experiment worked in the containing and resulting action, luckily. The scientist in question was thanked for their contribution to science and was promptly sent to a technological dead zone called the Amosphere, where most technology is banned. The other example, I'll list, is the time a human chemist created a long-sought all-in-one cure for cancer. Turns out that the secret ingredient was indeed hard liquor, they poured into their ongoing experiment. The human was heavily intoxicated and by some forsaken god's womb got the idea while passed out. He woke up in his laboratory and just poured the remainder of the bottle into his experiment. The resulting concoction, with the slight modifications depending on the receiver, is able to kill cancer cells at a 10,000 to 1 ratio. This meant that the largest tumors could easily be targeted and killed off whilst causing insignificant damage to healthy tissue. The result, while not directly applicable to Xenos, was the cornerstone for the current treatment and causes for most sapiens. What this means is that the humans can and will not restrain themselves to reasonable means after they feel that they have proven unsuccessful. Humans will, at the moment they break their psych, concoct ideas so outrightly idiotic and outlandish that I'm afraid of what they will do. The higher in education a human receives, the larger the threat they wield in their hands. An uneducated human is capable of your basic everyday misdeeds. Someone with an engineering degree is capable of insurmountable feats of destruction and madness. The only thing restraining most humans is their basic instinct to be helpful and orderly. They will be the first ones denouncing harsh means, even if they deserve it. Most humans, because there are always outliers, Humans born without empathy or remorse are dangerous, just like in any species. But the most dangerous ones are those who have been bent and broken from stress and strain, driven out of the comfortable fields of sanity and into the pits of madness and contempt. Such is the case of what ultimately caused the major change in how galactic powers and megacorporations operate with each other. Megacorporations had become either large governments themselves or controlled significant portions from behind the public eye. Wars were waged under fabricated pretenses when, in reality, it was just an extremely aggressive business tactics. Planets were conquered under the flag of liberation, but in reality, the populace just had new faces to look upwards to and curse at. Money became increasingly difficult to use as larger corporations had started using their own currencies making basic transactions between different areas almost impossible, as no one on the other side could use the corporation money elsewhere. The largest corporations controlled dozens of systems, 
streets with tight grips on that became even harder to get out of. Governments could do nothing as their laws became impossible to police, not that the well-paid-off officials wanted to. Bribes were sometimes even purported as salary, but at that point, no one could really fight back. Snitching on someone to the same someone really doesn't work out unless your goal was being taken for a naked spacewalk. This went on for a few decades with increasingly brutal shows of power. A horrible time in the history of the galaxy. Of course, most had started to resent the corporations, but their grip was too tight for normal people to start anything real. Getting caught meant being fired, which, in a system where all your money came from a single source that you could not use anymore, made you an outcast in moments. Some revolts started, but faded out. Sometimes they even completed their tasks and reclaimed control of systems. But greed took a hold, and rebellions became the same corporations they fought against. A few even kept the original corporation's name. The lines between species blurred as everyone was simply working for a corporation. No real winner species could be selected from the bunch. Even if some did generally better than others, it was an all-out lawless time as everyone tried to do what was best for themselves, and only themselves. Helping someone meant that they could be promoted instead of you. The different corporations had their own information systems, meaning that interstellar news became extinct no news from other systems would be heard by public on the other side. Corporations kept their populace in small bubbles and only fed them what they wanted to tell. A single system could fall out of control, but no one could see it happen. There was nothing unifying the galaxy anymore, no community beyond what business transactions and corporations lorded over. Ever larger space stations were built to serve as unified control hubs for corporations. The populace could not reach the stations and thus could not even dream of revolting. It was rare for anyone born planetside to ever even visit a station. It wasn't as rare as for someone to be kicked off stations and into the muddy grounds of the public. Only a few thousand elite would control billions of lives in company security, protected by turrets and the heaviest shielding money could buy. Even basic mechanics that lived on stations were living like kings, well, at least when compared to those stuck on planets. Eventually, someone got tired of it all. A human, a engineer, tasked with creating new weaponry. He was one of the rare specimens uplifted from menial jobs on the planet. He had simply worked to live and survive on a planet, but was given a job on a station after a purge of staff left the engineering department severely lacking in expertise. Saying no wasn't even an option to him. Say no would have meant being silenced. The corporation couldn't show weakness to the people, after all. It took over a decade for him to eventually rise to the top of the engineering food chain. He saw nearly all of his original compatriots become vile and twisted by their newly found glory along the way. He even witnessed some of them simply being dropped into space. He also found out what the bright burning flashes in the night sky near the station had been. All those times, he had watched the sky and seen meteors. All the time, as a child, he had looked up in wonder as the bright lights. All those flashes had been corpses burning in re-entry. In that moment of sick realization, something snapped in his mind. He began planning and constructing something only a mental patient could come up with in a drug-fueled fever dream. 
His position in the corporation gave him enough resources and freedom that allowed him to steal one of the largest ships in the corporation, stuffing it full of riches, machinery, and fuel. The station itself was left crippled by several malfunctions in the life support system and the complete destruction of the engineering department. No one managed to link his disappearance to the lost items. It was simply assumed that he had accidentally destroyed the engineering department, killing himself in the process and destroying the equipment. He jumped away to an unknown location and wasn't seen afterwards. Life went on as normal after the particularly large meteor shower lit up the planet sky. Around a decade after the incident, an impossibly sized warp signature was detected by the very same station scanners. The signature could only have been generated by something as large as a station. The station, by this time, was several kilometers long, making the person now responsible for the scanning station go into a frenzy. Warnings blared across the entire station as they expected the light from the incoming thing to reach the station. Every soul on the station was in panic, while the populace on the planet was ignorant of anything being wrong. Shields were raised to their utmost limits and projected towards the unknown object's point of entry. Then, something hit the station. They'd ripped the shields open like there had been nothing and tore through the center, causing critical damage to almost every system deemed necessary for life. The atmosphere vented from countless holes and tears in the station, rendering all major portions of the station dead within minutes. No one would have known what had hit the station if not for a short audio-only message that was sent from the object. The message was what can only be described as a manifesto. It was highly personalized to the creator's own life, which made it all but incomprehensible to everyone. The message wasn't important to the people, but the exploding carcass of the corporation station was. It wasn't long until the people revolted and the remaining corporate workers, now cut off from each other, and their management were left completely shattered, the corporation crumbling within days. Other corporations cared little for what had happened. They assumed it had just been a single nutjob who had crashed into an unprepared and badly shielded station with a warp engine. After three similar incidents with the same message repeating every time, they got concerned. Every time was the same. An unknown object would exit warp and then hit corporation station, destroying it completely. The object would destroy a station, then leave and warp towards the next closest station. The path of destruction went on for years, with corporation stations becoming ever scarcer as one by one they were destroyed for good. No matter how prepared or how much shielding the station had, it was always destroyed without knowledge of what had hit it. After many hits, someone had smarts to install a black box on a station that was believed to be one of the next targets. The box could be measured every single scanner and sensor reading from the entire station. They hoped that it would bring in some insight to it all. It did, in fact, give insight to the issue. The result terrified the mega corporation so much that it freely shared the information it had gotten. The still unknown object was traveling at what the computer routed up to 100% the speed of light. The black box was able to calculate up to 16,000 digits but after that, it would round up to the number. This explained why the object gave off such an astounding warp signature. Its speed was the highest recorded in history. Sure, warp speeds you up to faster than light, but it doesn't work for multiple strikes. 
The result from warp bubble hitting significant amounts of matter is also cataclysmic to everything nearby, so using a warp bubble offensively would have destroyed the object during the first attack. Most stations also have warp inhibitors to prevent attacks from warp missiles. Someone had built the perfect unstoppable weapon and aimed it at every single corporation station. With corporate stations beginning to number in the two digits, it was the beginning of a new time. Corporations that had been reliant on their fortified stations collapsed, leaving the people to build anew. No one wanted to rebuild corporations anymore, fearing what had become publicly known as Deus Mechanicus, to return and destroy the planet. No one knew if it could. No one wanted to try. The remaining corporations abandoned their stations and tried to go back planetside, but found only resistance movements. The galaxy had started to fill up with talk again. The last station to be destroyed was a special occasion. The station had been emptied weeks prior in fear. It was destroyed like usual. But this time a small capsule was detected detached and slowing down. This time, a different message was sent towards the planet. This time, in clear video. On the video was a disheveled man, shaking and stuttering on his words amidst spouts of laughter. The message was several minutes long and consisted of rambling, repeated structure, and enough explicitives and insults to count as a war crime. It only ended once the capital had gone too close to the star and gotten vaporized. Moments later, the now familiar warp signature appeared, taking every scrap of evidence with it. Scientists still bicker about how the impossible speed was achieved and how had time dilation not taken effect on the creator. Whatever the creation was, however it was made, people still cheer and celebrate it at its mention. The next centuries would be marked as rebuilding lost economies, this time with stricter rules placed on companies. Any signs of corruption within governments were met with uh, piercing opposition and public outcry. No one wanted a repeat of the past. Some still fear what the galaxy came to know as Deus Mechanicus, Killdozer. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1787. Better Angels, written by Nick Graydon. Special High Ambassador and Senior Diplomat to the Union Council, Reeve Samugi, had a real issue on her hands. Thanks to a few friends, she was privy to information that her appearance at the upcoming inquiry was intended to be targeted attack on humans and their government. The exact nature was still a mystery, but it was hard for her to believe, as Earth had yet to join the Union Council officially. Their laws did not weigh on a species as a whole. Humanity's foray into the stars was soon met with first contact. The resulting plan for the planet was quick and harsh, but a few ambassadors were sent forth to hammer out a few details and to stall joining the ranks of the local space-faring species. Back home, it was quickly decided to lock down the planet. No one was to go off-planet without extensive background checks and rules to follow. Handed down from the government, and only then on preordained and approved business. No alien was allowed to land on the planet, and all information was to be censored and approved before being shared. Likewise, all incoming shared information was to receive similar treatment and be thoroughly vetted and censored before being loosed to the public at large. Sumugi's position demanded a certain degree of trust to have free reign on the information she shared. However, 
Going outside sense alliance would result in a mountain of paperwork to be filed. She knew, of course, the reason for the lockdown, and she had never had to give more than a smattering of unauthorized details to keep things in check. With the upcoming inquiry, however, she feared that this might change. When she opened the doors to the room, a pit developed in her stomach. The counselors on the board in front of her did not bode well for the meeting. Knowing the ranks and titles, she immediately saw how this inquiry would be handled and the targets for which they were aiming. She inwardly sighed in resignation, her rebuttal and answers already forming in her mind. As she took her seat, it was only moments before three lights and a buzzer went off, calling the inquiry to order. No time was wasted getting to the point. Their translator in her ear sprang to life as the chairman began. We are today to investigate claims that humans have been mistreating their citizenry and to explore rumors of misconduct. These inquiries are designed to determine if there is truth to the rumors of crimes against sentient life that require a forceful intervention by the Union. What followed was accusations of abuse and rights violations heightened by the lack of access of information from the planet and from Union Council species to the planet. A call to answer the lack of access of the citizens to be given freedom of movement off planet was passionately given by one of the representatives. Through it all, Reevesun Mugi remained tight-lipped and emotionless until the final representative stood and gave a scathing moral denunciation of the conduct of the human government with barely veiled threats of breaking the isolationist blockade with military might. This made her face drop in sorrow, then furrow in anger. When the final representative was finished, she was allowed to answer the accusations. She knew the council had little power to enact any real threat, especially as Earth had yet to join, but it had been fifty years now since the contacts, so maybe it was time to fill them in on the secrecy. The paperwork for divulging this would be huge, but it was freedom she had. It was not impulsive, a sure way to be an effective ambassador, but given the rather severe charges being laid at her feet and the possible loss of goodwill should these rumors circulate further, she made an executive decision to allow the council to know exactly why Earth was locked down. No amount of flowery language could get her out of this one. The time had come. Simuki slowly raised herself out of her seat to stand and give her reply. Humans are terrible at new things. We are also terrible at passing new information when we don't like it. As a species, we have had great difficulty giving up on long-held beliefs. We refused for so long to believe lightning was not a work of the gods, or that disease was caused by the life that we couldn't even see, or even that evolution was a real thing. We almost destroyed our planet because we could not accept that it was warming irregularly from population growth and our increased use of fossil fuels. Our scientists almost crumbled when individuals were finally connected to each other, giving each a voice to the world at large for a mass communication. It would take generations for hate and bigotry to be removed from the lines of genealogical succession, and even more still, for prejudices to be removed. It took that long for humans to realize that there was no them, only different facets of us. We are a social species, we were the first joined in tribes, but often then our tribes encountered outsiders, those of other tribes. 
The end result was bloodshed. This was the case for over 300 millennia. It was only in the very late part of the existence we began to become better at speaking to each other's tribes and averting war as war became more and more costly. That said, be very aware that war is not new to us. We have practiced it over and over again in conflict after conflict. Some of those conflicts were for resources or owning land. Other times we fought over ideology or religion. The most spiteful and heinous wars were fought for the sole reason to dominate or eradicate those in tribes not our own. Wars are pure. Hate. No, war is not new. We have warred longer and harder than all of the Union Council species combined. We are sadly masters of the very well-crafted art of dealing death. War on or under land or sea. War in space or air. It does not matter. We know how to fight from a position of strength or outnumbered 100 to 1. We know how to fight when technologically inferior or superior. But the fear of war is not why we have controlled access through and from our planet. Still standing, she reached down and took a drink. All eyes in the room were on her and all ears turned to her every word. As she drank, Ambassador Reeves felt the weight of her species was on her as well. She could not escape the feeling that this should turn out well. One day, little children would be required to learn this impromptu speech in classes. She hoped that she could finish strong. She put the glass down and continued. Humans are bad at the new and slow to give up biases and prejudices. Earth's ambassadors and few free-roaming folk are being given time to make mistakes and cause small-scale issues so books and guides and laws can be written to avoid unfavorable contact with others as we hope to lessen any negative interactions that fester into the bigotry in the minds of our population and in the minds of other species. I told you we've been making war for most of our existence, but before we made war, we made friends with those in our tribes. We made fellow tribesmen laugh, and we shared our possessions with them. We made music together and shared stories. We cured the ill and took care of the elderly. We protected and bartered and loved each other. And that is what we want. We don't want to allow our peoples to rush out to meet the new aliens. We want time to acclimate to the new normal where our people rush out to meet fellow tribesmen. Ambassador Reeves sat down. She looked at the council and smiled as she poured herself more water. I hope that this information serves to alleviate any concerns you possess. We are not endangering or mistreating our people. We are protecting ourselves from foreigners until they are no longer foreigners. Give us time to foster our better angels, so no one has to fear our demons. End of story. Story number two. When they came. Written by Louis Le Diamond. I remember when we came to Earth. Our empire glass and our spirits broken. Our entire civilization lay in ruin. And so we fled. We had no idea that planet was inhabited. A primitive race known as the humans called the small blue rock home. They had welcomed us into their arms, and we built an island to live. They traded and visited us, learning of our culture and of our plight. I remember when they came, the ones who burned everything we had to the ground. They were to finish the deed they had started, 
and were to wipe out the apes that had given us refuge. But the humans stood tall. They stood and faced the danger. Their lands were burned and their people slaughtered, but they never ceased to fight. They fought countless futile battles just to win an inch of land back. They spilled their blood for our sins. In the end, it wasn't enough. No matter how hard the invaders pushed, the primates they called this planet their home were too determined to let it slip away. The endless invading fleets were no match for humanity's unwavering courage. When the dust finally settled, the invaders were gone. Earth wasn't worth it. We weren't worth it. Hundreds of millions of humans were dead. But the invaders had suffered worse. I remember when we came to Earth, a refuge, and became a friend. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1788. Last Dance, written by Tal McCull. For the first time, in what might have been days, Herbert took the time to look around. With his back resting on the stone support column, he was as comfortable as he could make himself without taking off his armor. The exhaust, even on idle, was enough to warm the hundreds of pounds of stone if he stayed here much longer. Still, there was a limit to what a cocktail of amphetamines, caffeine, and glucose could do. Better to rest and die well than keep fighting exhausted. It was pointless anyhow. They had lost. No, see, we're going to take a rest here for a little while. Cover us, will you? He shrugged his shoulders forward and let his servos deploy as the support fire module only for nothing to happen. Sorry, buddy. All empty. Besides, I've got you on enough stimulants to kill whatever eats you. Final, feck you, am I right? You couldn't sleep if I started reading you nursery rhymes. Herbert managed a brief chuckle before the full-body bruising made him regret it. <laughs> yeah, oh see, you're right. Want to hit me with a little tetrodotoxin? Just to make sure. I'm really not feeling great, buddy. Silence. You know, that would kill you with your oxygen levels. I can't boost your absorption any higher. The filters are fading. They've got us in some sort of microparticle gas. They must be getting sick of your crap. He knew better than to laugh this time, but that still made him smile. Back off, O.C. You don't get any nursery rhymes. Oh, my mama loved me, unlike you, Herbert. I know plenty of nursery rhymes. Bullcrap, O.C., and you don't have a mother. But you are funny, I'll give you that. Herbert wasn't stupid. O.C. was trying to minimize the system status trays. His HUD was a disaster of failure warnings, conditional overloads, and biosigns that didn't take a doctor to figure out. Oh, sorry, Herbert. I meant to say, your mother loved me. Whispered sweet nothings all night. I recorded it and spin passed around the dropship a few times, but you can have it next. That last one was worth a quite full-bodied laugh, despite the pain. <laughs> well, maybe you can read me a story. Might be something good around here. Must have been something back in this, this time, huh? Looking around, it was obvious this had been some sort of library. A great stone dome before it had collapsed, still in a great shape after orbital strikes. 
Herbert had seen enough ancient alien cities to know the domes always seemed far better than the other shapes. Evidently, it had been ransacked at some point, probably in an effort to preserve the history of whoever's planet this had been. Still, there were hundreds of drives left on the ground. Might have been these people's plato he had crushed when he stumbled inside. Drives wouldn't be compatible anyhow. Besides, he couldn't spare the wattage from his suit. The fission battery was now being supplemented by emergency chemical fuel, even without him moving. You know, it's funny, but I've got nothing in my records about who this planet belongs to. Trying to suppress his cough, Herbert finally gave in and permitted a mild throat clearing. The pain this time caused his vision to go purple, and his spine felt like poured ice water down his back. Doesn't matter. Belongs to the Kern now, O.C. Gently shifting the weight to his side, breathing became a little easier. Hey, when was the last time you uploaded? I want to die knowing your sarcastic smartass is making your mama jokes to the next poor bastard they button up. Nah, I'm defective after living with your deranged ass. They don't want to take me back after they saw your browser history. Your psych evaluation said, and I quote, the latex I could handle, but why goats? That's only worth a smile, Herbert thought. Osi was trying to change the subject. No, seriously, Osi. When did you last upload? Six minutes after drop. I might have gotten through once or twice seven days ago when air support got a little too friendly. But I didn't get a confirmation. You tried to ditch me during an airstrike. Think of all the fun we had since then. That hurt, girl. Just a copy. I'm still here, Herbert. Wouldn't want it any other way. Osi, finally given up on the jokes. Herbert knew without looking at his biometrics. It must be pretty close now. Risking a glance down at his feet, he couldn't believe he was able to walk on the shredded frames. The automatic tourniquets must have severed the whole mass and let the servos compensate. When he had transcended, suit technology wasn't even close to whatever this was. Oh, see, what year is this? Honestly, I don't know. I swear I'd tell you if I did. I can't even tell you who made our hardware. My clock speeds are incredible. Chronology on my updates are all wrong. I've got memories from different pilots in the same years. Things must have gone pretty bad for us to be deployed without an acclimation cycle. Your body still has an umbilical cord attached and must have unplugged less than a month ago. So soft spot on the skull means that they were in a hurry. Yeah, that tracks. My brain felt like it was still developing motor control when we dropped. Still got a hand to this body. Built like a brick shit us. One of the more prominent biometric symbols and impossible to ignore and seemed to object to being called a shithouse. His heart had stopped. Not a huge issue. The mechanical backup was in many ways more effective. Thankfully, it seemed to be working. Safely tucked in the inner sanctum of the suit. The flatline audio was cut off after a few seconds when O.C. started talking again. Listen, Herbert. We can't stay here any longer. The chemical batteries are throwing too much heat to mask. They're going to come for us soon. I don't know... I think this might be a fine place. There was no humor in Herbert's voice. This really was his limit. You sure? I've not sensed the network in days. I have no idea if the drone can make it back. At least, let me check. OC's sub-program loaded into the drone and deployed. As expected, the jamming signals wouldn't even let the drone talk to the suit the moment after disconnect. Looking back down at their home, OC was shocked to see how much damage the suit had taken. 
O.C. hadn't lied to his pilot. That suit model wasn't in any of the onboard databanks, instead of wasting power on speculation. O.C. found its way onto the blown-out roof of the dome and flew up a few hundred meters. Gurn troopers had surrounded the library, but didn't seem to be in a hurry to engage the wounded Terran. A quick optical pulse was fired in nine directions to signal for orbital evac, and O.C. memorized the Kern troopers' locations and armaments. The grazing shot let the drone know that it was spotted, so it zipped back into the dome and docked with the suit. O.C. briefly flashed out in existence when it emerged with its parent suit. Asked for a ride. Not sure if anyone heard us. There are at least sixty of the chicken schlitz outside, Herbert. The O.C. decided to let him sleep. It would be a miracle if he ever woke up. Something soothing about letting the suit pump his blood. While O.C. was gone, his lungs had stopped. Now a bypass valve was letting the air circulate between the two lungs. Herbert may as well have been an iron womb. O.C. had started to feel maternal to its pilots. Their last few updates. Still, it had been a long time since one of her lives included the death of a pilot. Dead pilots usually mean defeats. Not much hope of uploading out if a battle is lost. The drone had easily spotted the scouts climbing the exterior and timed his summit perfectly. The support fire module casually shot it as it slowly lifted its head over the edge of the hole in the roof. Osi may have fibbed a little in an effort to keep Herbert awake a little longer. There were only six rounds left in the magazine. Herbert's wrist-mounted guns had run dry days ago. The dead scout was going to scare them back for another few minutes. Osi ran a systems check and prepared. The responsiveness of the processors and controls were phenomenal. O.C. was able to fine-tune the controls and feedback of the suit without stressing Herbert, who was essentially in a coma now. rock by baby in its retreat top. The O.C. decided to hum a nursery rhyme and was pleased to see the brainwaves were responding. Herbert could still sense O.C.'s presence. O.C. knew a couple of these from a comforting program in earlier peacekeeping A.I.s. Most generations of A.I.s had some form of comforting protocol for these moments. Nothing programmed, just a thing learned over the generations. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock. Osi severed a brainstem and injected a conductive fluid down the spinal cord. As the fluid was pumped down Herbert's nerves, Osi mapped out his inputs and tested the broken body for function. What wasn't working was integrated into the server assist. Herbert's full reflex and triggered as Osi hauled Herbert to his feet. A gentle flood of tetrodotoxin was pumped into his brain and put him in a euphoric state. He gave him a gentle shh. When the bow breaks, the cradle will fall. Multiple grenades were tossed into the dome. The blast didn't even register in Herbert's brainwaves. O.C. initiated a destructive scan and flashed the hard copy of Herbert onto the black box of his drone. The violent use of the power and his loss of Herbert's organic computing assistance caused his body to fold itself forward like a marionette that had lost a string. And down will come baby, cradle, and all. The drone shot out of its housing and focused its secondary camera down on the suit that had collapsed to the ground. One of the O.C.'s first pilots had told her a story a long time ago. He believed that when he died, death would come to collect him. But before he was taken, he would be allowed to dance one last time, and even the devil would have to watch and wait till he was done. The body lurched upwards with an unnatural jerking motion, 
the last rounds in the support module tore apart the curious troops advancing on what had looked to be a corpse. The suit began a twitching, sluttering slunge at the remaining troops as they fired in panic at the shambling puppet. The drone lost sight of the battle as it left the dome and deployed its balloon and transponder. The devil and the Kurd would have to watch O.C.'s primary A.I. and Herbert's last dance together. Days later, O.C. was pleased to see the entire structure had collapsed during her orbit. Optical sensors had even detected friendly stealth drones were plucking ejected drones out of the sky for pilot retrieval. She again ran a current to warm the black box contained inside of her. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1789 Story number one, Archaeology, written by evil little weird guy. Archaeology is what you call it, but tomb robbing is a more apt term. Every few years a new ruin is detected, typically just fragments of a ship or station, nothing much of true value remaining. Us, vultures, would get there first, combing through them for the more nuanced prizes, before a nearby corporation or conglomerate would carefully strip them of valuable alloys and composites. Ruin number 552C was the latest discovery, one close to my usual haunts. A small vessel slit in half from within, two flowers made of twisted internal and folded hull plates. Easy entry, clean lines. I floated through space, merely pushing off the sides of the wreck as I passed within. Absolute silence. With the whole derelict exposed to vacuum, the only sounds are those of my suit and body. Starper and Bulkhead spun through the dark, each glittering as they repeat, sunrise, day, Sunset, night, open, open, cut open, burned, but shut. The easiest rewards have all been plucked from the scorps, but perhaps it still holds some new treasure. It's clear that an irregular torch won't be sufficient for the sentry. As rudimentary as the scan of this section is, it confirms my suspicion. Dense internal walls able to resist even the violent death of the vessel won't be scratched by a hand torch. Running these salvage ops alone does have its downside. No lackey to lug equipment to and from the ship. No time to waste. Two ships incoming. It's not generally recommended to get in a fight over a graveyard. It takes precious minutes to haul the industrial cutters into the wreck. More minutes to set up. One line cut. Two. Three. A remote warning. Ships will emerge near the wreck soon. Four lines. Careful handling. And the square slides out smoothly. I squeeze inside, careful, to avoid the edges of the hole. I do not fully understand what I see, but I understand enough. Power conduits, and perhaps some fine control wiring. Something of value. Careful disconnection can wait. I trace the connections as far away from the central device as I can, and set to work on a speedy excision. The emergence of new vessels is imminent. I leave the counter. The relic enters my cargo bay as the proximity alarm sounds. I hastily secure it and rush to the bridge, removing my helmet and calming my breath. Sliding into the chair, I hail the approaching ships. Cordiality is key. A thin veneer of politeness can smooth over so many misinterpretations. Salvage vessel prepared to hand over goods or be boarded. Pirates, no. Pirates shoot first. We're both too late. It's been picked clean. I don't believe them. 
This silence seems to say similar. Not much capacity on your ship there. Only room for a single digits at best. The connection holds for a moment before cutting off. The two ships begin an approach, but on the other side of the derelict, violence averted. Good pickings, I messaged them. I aim the ship home, and space falls around me. Two days, a relatively short journey when you consider the typical vastness of space, but long enough to do some poking around. I'd be a lousy archaeologist if I didn't bother to hypothesize on my finds. This one looks particularly promising. A smooth, dark cube with two points oriented vertically. Connections sprout from six remaining vertices. Cabling, folded down in neat lines along a small pedestal, impossibly fine markings adorn every side. I had two days to see if I had found something exceptional. Of course, the discovery process of these relics was difficult. Supplying power was hard even when the lines were obvious. Early discoveries had a fairly high chance of exploding, as we didn't know how to connect them properly. Thankfully, those days had passed, and we had learned enough to successfully salvage electronics more often than not. Some cables bore markings indicating power, some indicating information. This I could do. Start small, move up. Connect something unlikely to calls and overload first. Okay, system power on. Okay, minimal power requirements met. Morning, power feedback non-functional. Okay, interface manager. Morning, external connections not responding. Okay, maintenance interface enabled. Morning, insufficient power for interface. Okay, neural test complete. Personality loaded. Error. Power unstable. Ceasing operations. Error. Terminating. Please! Don't kill me! Again! Program. End of story. Story number two. Foeman. Written by Rosie013. The slight change in the scent meant another fool had ventured into his home. Faeclaw didn't mind. It had been a little while since he had last killed something, and his belly ached with the need to eat. The stranger simply meant that he didn't have to go out of his cave into the falling snows to find food. Another younger, meeker self might have almost thanked the stranger for the convenience before killing him. But the fey crawl was gone, lost beneath the weight of hundreds of battles and even more slain foes. In fact, he had become so powerful in might that the home clan put aside the differences to band together and throw him out. They too were fools. They knew nothing of glory without him. No matter the smaller layer, lying up in the mountains was much more fitting for a mighty warrior such as himself. Now he was a mighty warrior, Herbert, even if he was maybe a little colder all year round. Smug. With self-confidence, he maneuvered in the gloom of his home to observe the intruder as he stumbled around clumsily, flicking torch in hand. Clearly, the stranger hadn't seen him, or he would have already fled in awe at the sight of the fake crawl's well-scarred and muscle-toned form. The intruder was a human, a lanky sneak thief crawling about in the dark leathers. Damn pests! He must have come for his herd. Humans love golden hordes, 
Not so much silver hordes, though. Strange creatures, but more importantly, delicious. It was tempting just to charge in right there, sit in space hunger, on the full, still warm flesh, but no. There was a proper way to do these things, to make sure the foeman was as satisfying as his bloodlust, as his Betty. Ropes of drool puddled on the floor as Fayclaw turned away, seeking his hoard stash and the prized weapon he kept there. It would not be right to leave it unbloodied, especially since this foe went to the effort to seek him out. He had time to saunter. Humans had such weak dark vision that he would be stumbling about in the cave for a few minutes yet. Back straight and tall as he could manage, Faycraw lightly tapped his chosen weapon against the cave floor as he strut into the foolish human's tiny pool of torchlight. The intruder's jaw dropped, stunned at the most magnificent being it had probably ever witnessed, or ever would. Armor covered his muscular body thick enough to stop the mightiest of blades. What wasn't covered displayed layer upon layer of scars worthy of any dozen lesser warlords on his green-tinged hide. A noble and proud face held piercing intelligence, red eyes, and a smile full of teeth that would put a shock to shame. Strong hands that ended in mighty claws, gripping a large wrought weapon of encrusted, studded beauty. Sometimes Vaycraw regretted that he didn't own a mirror. But the look on the stupid human's face before he died would suffice for now. And with that, he let out a roaring war cry, then marked him as one of the true terrors of the land, and charged into battle. Renegade the thief braced himself for the onslaught that was sure to follow. But none came. The first goblin had monumentally surprised him, but was easily dispatched with a knife to the throat before he could land its comically oversized spike club. The real danger came from the fact that they were rarely alone, but this one seemed to be an exception. Calming enough from the adrenaline rush, enough to lower his eyes from the dark surroundings of the cavern to examine the corpse, Ren could see that it was a particularly large and old specimen of its kind. Its twisted, ugly body was wizened and covered in scrap armor, typical of goblin kind everywhere. Tall for a goblin, but not big enough for a hobgoblin. Odd for it to be alone. At least it made this particular quest easy to complete. He knew he wouldn't be able to take on bigger jobs without having found a party of his own just yet. Carefully, he picked out a large key he had retrieved from a pile of broken weapons and brass scraps that the greenskin had collected in a pile at the back of his lair. Nan disappeared back into the falling snow without a trace. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1790 Humans Aren't Invincible Written by Hmm Humans are a lot of things. My many years of being a captain, I've seen their strengths firsthand, many times. Most notably for the ship is their social aspects. As an expedition vessel crew, cohesion is very important, and our resident human muscle has always been the linchpin for all of the species on board. We get along fine, yes, but not as well as with them here. As such, I've had to deal with the humans' tendencies to, uh, socialize. Frankly, it has not been an issue at all, 
except for some noise complaints that I've had to reprimand them for every now and again. But that is not what I'm here to document. Along with all their quirks, most notably is their range as a species, and I use range in a statistical way, as often very wildly, especially if you only have a few individuals as reference. Their spectrum as a species is greater than any other, often for vastly different reasons from individual to individual. You see, with all that variation and reactions to certain situations are very interesting. Most notably, however, is a person from my crew that we lovingly refer to as Glacier, because he rarely shows any emotions beyond enjoying or disliking things. After talking to him about it, he mentioned that he had to make an armor, as when he was a child, he was too kind, too nice. He explained that he was so nice that back then, his teacher called his parents after school one day, because he had hit a kid, and his teacher was so proud of standing up for himself. I obviously found this weird, as my experience with humans was that they did their best to protect things they deemed cute, and what he had described sounded like that. He elaborated, saying that I had only met small groups of humans, but there are more than enough that would wholeheartedly take advantage of a person like that. He was so nice that he loved all his friends, and he loved his parents, and yet... He was born into a military family, forever fated to move and lose those he cared about. And so he was forced to put up this armor, which he was very proud of, even if he saw the limitations of it. I felt bad, because despite all the rumors in the galaxy, I had grown very fond of humans. But this was a reminder that they are a death-willed species, and not a nice one at that. And so I got a newfound respect for glaciers, but also a want to comfort him, I guess was the best way to describe it. But quite honestly, I did not know how, as this was a fringe case even for humans, and I was no shrink, just a captain. And even if I could, the comfort wouldn't reach him under all the armor as if he himself told me. So I called a meeting with the other humans secretly after the lights out. It seemed like this wasn't a surprise to them, even though they didn't know the details. They said they expected something along those lines. He didn't seem like the type with a dark origin story, but a slightly melancholic one seemed to fit. They said that they had known each other for a while and tried to help, but the glacier didn't need help. He seemed to enjoy the comfort of his protection. So we tried to come up with an idea to lower those defenses so that we could really get to him. I liked this idea, and I write in revolving his friends to help. Our first solid idea was an intervention. However, this was shot down by Glacier's CEO. He mentioned that more so than most modern humans, he was very much a beast of instinct. So if he cornered him, then he would most likely lash out, try to flee, or bolster his defense. Even if it was just his closest of friends talking to him. The more I insisted, the more I grew sad as if I was watching a stray chert, who I wanted to bring home away from the rain, who was too scared to accept my love for it. Except in this case, it wasn't a foot-long fuzzy baby, but a six-foot-tall hairless great ape who would easily break a bone of mine. That was until our combat engineer Abigail, aka Abby, had an idea. Hey Cap, if I'm getting this right, you want to help him, yes? Like saving a sheltered dog that is aggressive only because it's scared. Abby had asked as if knowing exactly the answer. 
Not liking why my humans act like that, I tentatively answered, y y yes. I had seen their dogs before, a lot sharper than the Chutel, but their puppies were comparable to the Chut. Well, I have never seen him drop his facade per se, but I have seen cracks in it once, she said, with a smile similar to that weird interdimensional cat from the fairy tale that humans love so much. Looking around the room, it seemed to dawn on the brighter of the bunch, but the rest, including me, were lost. She continued, When we docked in Eden 7, there was a very attractive harpy, and as you know, they can, uh, sense, I guess, emotional states, and similar to you, Cap, it seemed that she wanted to pamper old Glace and take him to her place where she could properly, uh, care for him. That was the one and only time it looked like his armor was gone, like he didn't know what to do. He truly seemed to be scared crapless, but didn't make a single move or even twitch to move or run away. After that, she had to clarify herself that no, she was not insinuating that we should force someone to have sex with him. That's just fucking stupid and weird, as she said. What she was actually insinuating was next time he said something even mildly depressing, I should just treat him like a wet, shivering puppy who has a broken leg and comfort him as much as I can. I wondered why I was to do this, not that I minded. But wasn't it better if we all did? The CEO answered again. If we corner him like that, he'll most likely just brush it off. It has to be more personal. And, well, we are too human, after all. Don't forget we built those walls to keep humans out, not aliens. Everyone nodded to that. Abby added, And he's joked enough about his taste in women that at this point I'm fairly certain he has mommy issues. And what better way to play to that than being comforted by a ten-foot-tall wolf mummy with massive bazooka. A quick smack on the back of her head shut her up before the CEO continued. While the details were unnecessary, I do agree that if we want to help Glacier to be more emotionally open, we need to lower his defenses. And it seems to do that you check all the boxes here, Chief. Quite honestly, at this point, I was astounded. I knew humans were emotional creatures, but still, I could tell how much they wanted to help their friend. Glacier and I had started a weekly tea time, as he called it. It was how I originally heard his story, and so the plan was to do it then. The tea was fantastic as always, but the conversation was more stilted than normal. While he had not changed, now instead of a grand immobile obelisk, I could only see a scared and lonely chut hiding as deep in the earth as it could. It happened when we were discussing the new recruits and the people they replaced. As stoic as ever, he said, People come and people go. Be it strangers or family, nothing is constant. Being sad about it helps no one. It only slows you down. It's the sad reality of life. But once you accept it, life gets easier. He said with a half smile, before I would have brushed it off as his unique utilitarian philosophy. But now, now I only saw a boy who loved all the people he met, but was cursed with having to lose them over and over, resigning himself to what he believed was inevitable. I couldn't help myself. I grabbed him out of his chair and hugged him as tight as I could. I needed him to feel that people wouldn't leave, that he could be kind and nice. He was stiff at first, obviously not knowing what to do, but as Abby said, he made no move to stop this. So I didn't. We stood there for a long enough time for the lights to turn off. I simply held him and told him that it would be alright. That sometimes it's good to be sad. Just 
for a bit. It took a while, longer than a while, for him to so much as tighten his grip on my fur. Not long after then, I could feel him shaking. Not a lot. Probably so little that you wouldn't tell visually by the way he liked it. I sat him down on the soft, warm rack room floor, where he curled his legs in and started to cry. I held him like a mother protecting her young. He didn't cry much, nor like the other humans. He made no noise, not even a lot of tears came out. He just sat in my arms, slightly shaking. I thought this was as good a time as any to pry a little deeper, and so I did, and he opened up. He told me his life story. He was always loved and respected. On the surface, nothing to complain about, but his situation was anything but ideal. He moved every two to three earth years, each time losing basically all contact with his previous life. No matter how close he was with them, his parents worked basically always, so he only had caretakers throughout his childhood. And after early childhood, he was basically alone. It was heart-rending. I told him not to worry, because he would never lose me or the rest of his friends here. While he slightly smiled at that, he scoffed under his breath. At that, I pulled his face to mine and made it clear to him that we wouldn't leave. Staring into those bloodshot eyes, they burst out crying. I was honestly relieved, because this was an emotional reaction I knew from the other humans. He was finally opening up. It seemed the door wasn't completely closed as I heard shuffling and whispers of shock coming from it. Looking up behind Glacier's back, I saw his friends all looking amazed and happy. They gave me a thumbs up and other signs of approval and left. To this day, I am grateful for them as they were able to help me in helping their friend. After that, things returned to normal on the ship. Glacier was still his usual cold self, if not noticeably cheerier. He had thanked me for what I did. That confused me. Not because he did, but because he looked embarrassed. He had the same expression as the CEO has when he gets mail from his husband back home. However, what confused me most was that he was surprised that his crewmates didn't tease him about it. Apparently, everyone previously in his life would. What he didn't know was that I told them that, and of course, after our initial meeting, we didn't want him to lock himself off again so we all paid extra close attention. The rest of the trip was fantastic. Glacier didn't like the idea of actual therapy or even talking too much about his feelings, but he did say he wouldn't mind hugs. Well, they did take a full bottle of vodka to get him to say that, but hey, if it works, it works, and even he couldn't find fault in our techniques, and he definitely is sharp enough to figure those out. But either way, now we sleep together. He says that he enjoys having someone to grab hold of at night. I postulated and he agreed that maybe it was because he wanted the reassurance that he wasn't alone. Either way, it was the cutest thing in the world to have him curl up in my arms like that Choot is now healthy and happy. Obviously the crew have been making their slight remarks, human or not, but after showing the security footage, that stopped. To quote Abigail, that's just too pure to make fun of, and I hope it is, because maybe we might be getting the original ray of sunshine back from the glacier. Hmm, maybe we should give him a new nickname. Ray does sound nicer than Glacier. End of story.
Tales from Outer Space 1791. Story number one. Bloodsport, written by Mad Mechanic. For the convenience of all coalition species, the dates, measurements, and terminology will be automatically converted to the preferred language of the reader. Following the advent of bioforgers, mass producibles, nanite swarms, short-range quantum entanglement, and chronal stasis fields, coalition scientists created the revitalization chamber. The concept was simple. Once the patient's life science fell beneath an acceptable range, they would automatically be teleported into a chamber with the stasis field. While they are in there, a swarm of bioforge-wielding nanites would begin placing them back together. The whole process takes only 15 seconds. With the creation of the technology came a rebirth of something which was outlawed millennia ago. Bloodsport. Since there was now no longer a way for combatants to die in these competitions, there was no part of coalition law which prohibited it. These battles were fought in the way of arenas old, eliminate the enemy team to win. It was a good concept at first, but modern weaponry meant that most games didn't last very long. Interest in the sport gradually declined. Then... We met the humans. Now, to understand why this was an important event, we first need to understand the human mind, as well as their brutal homeworld. Despite looking and usually acting like a paradise world species, humans originated from a hellhole known as Terra, or in their more archaic records as Earth. Terra is, to date, the only inhabited world that bears a classification of apocalyptic. On their world, Everything is constantly trying to kill everything else. Even the bloody plants are dangerous. Bearing this in mind, remember that humans are low on the food chain that before they began building cities. Even their prey could easily eat them. This led to two interesting adaptations. Adaptability and the innate ability to turn anything into a weapon if they tried hard enough. The effects of these two factors on their society and psych are evident to this day. Even their earlier societies were extremely warlike, and throughout their history, wars were the greatest source of inspiration and progress to their people. As a result, they never ended blood sport, they merely civilized it. Battles became gladiatorial arenas, which in turn became combat sports, and then they first began simulating 3D spaces with machines. One of their first moves was to create simulated arenas that even the untrained every man could partake in. So what does this have to do with Bloodsport, I hear you ask? Well, everything, really. When the Terran Imperium joined the system's coalition, they took one look at our arenas and unanimously thought to themselves, Yep, uh, we can do something with this. And set about introducing the coalition to new forms of Bloodsport. Capture the flag, King of the Hill, trouble in trade to town, a battle royale, payload, etc. The list goes on. The point is that they have brought back the interest in Bloodsport and have given us a fresh outlook on how diverse things can truly be. But besides that, Terrans dominate the games for years just because of former experience. But it didn't take long for everyone else to catch up. Soon, the galactic network was flooded with highlight reels of the achievements of the champions in these games. Still, there were many champions, but only a few legends. Only a few who would be etched into the history for centuries to come. It is both my duty and honor to write down some of their names and achievements here. Marcus Argenta. In the TTT match of 2170, Marcus went down in history for the first instance of a match being completed without a traitor ever being caught. 
Even the crowd had no idea that he was a killer until he eventually stood atop the tallest building in the arena and cried out, I think that's everyone. To this day, TTT players in the Interplanetary League study that match from his perspective to learn effective ways to both counter traitors and effectively eliminate all other players. Solus Address Although I doubt a mad cyborg of Mars requires an introduction, it would be a crime against the Royal Bloodsport fans not to do so. In 2500, a payload match was taking place on the planet Era. No available transcription in user's language. The entirety of Solus's team are still on a regen clock, and the heavy hitters would be some of the last ones out. She was on her own. At some point she pulled a burn on the pressure grenade, the crowd expecting that she was taking a quick way back to her team's home base by forcing herself to regen. What she did next created a whole new strategy for playing Bloodsport. She dropped the grenade and jumped forward, and it went off. The pressure of the blast sent her flying towards the cart, and you can imagine the surprise on the Zaltaran team when an adrenaline-fueled Terran cyborg came flying at them with a shotgun in one hand and an automated turret in the other. By the time the rest of the Terrans had gotten back to the payload, they found that Solus had set up a turret on a ledge overlooking the payload. In the meantime, she had been sent back to the region chamber. It was a Kamangazi move, but it won the game for the Terrans. Argus, Magnus, and Kalim Drakov a triple terror from Europa. In the Coalition Battle Royal of 24-21, the three brothers were representing terror in the 100 species pre-roll. Most people remember the score most of all, as the Terrans scored a total of 158 kills, more than half the number of the participating contestants. In the end, it came down to a duel between Magnus and the last Andari combatant. The duel ended in a Terran victory as Magnus miraculously planted his last round in his pistol, in the skull of his enemy. Thus, the Terrans had claimed yet another victory. As you can clearly see, the Terrans are built for Bloodsport and are the reason that it became popular again. At least, the bloody Death Worlders didn't start a war during First Contact, judging by how religiously they play I never want to know how well they fight. End of story. Story number two. Weak yet powerful. Written by Incrediblis Ho. Opex let out a last sigh. Looking at the door in front of him, he had revised and practiced his presentation many times. He wasn't the best public speaker, and how he was the one chosen to do this was beyond him. But saying no wasn't an option. It was now or never. He looked at his paper one last time. Coming from Sol 3, the Federation of Earth has accomplished many great feats, he read out loud. He skimmed over the rest of the script. He was supposed to present this to the room of envoys and other studied nations. His expertise, although, was in diplomacy. He was the biologist at heart, and although he had studied the humans carefully and met with their envoys many times, he wasn't confident in his ability to represent them well enough. He readied himself and opened the door. There he stood, his purple skin, his small legs and bulky body graced the podium. He started speaking. Greetings, honorable envoys. I am Opex of the Ogpath Enclaves. As you may know, I have been selected to inform you of humanity. Humanity hails from Sol 3, also known as Earth 
Earth is what we would consider to be a wet world, as 80% of its surface consists of water. Besides that, the planet is slightly above average gravity, and only one sun. With all those details out the way, let us first look at humanity as a race, and then look at the Federation of Earth. Humanity as a race can be best described as a weak, albeit graceful, and intelligent, albeit foolish. To elaborate on my first point, their very method of locomotion is them falling through the air, predicting where they are landing, and then going doing it again in a smooth rhythm. However, they are weak, both relative to us and relative to other animals on their planet. Add on to that their lack of claws or fangs, and they need their endurance, speed, and reflexes. For my second point, they haven't existed for an incredibly long time, and yet they have already achieved FTL. From the moment they existed, they started creating tools, first primitive tools, and then later they learned how to work metal. Tools and tool usage has always been very important to them. However, they often do something without asking themselves the question if they should do it. And yet they have found the craftsmanship and science are more effective tools of war than any claw is. When we first made contact with them, we noticed that all of their troops were armed with tools. When we mentioned that we enhanced our claws with metal to create weapons of war, they thought us stupid and inefficient. He finished. A few of the envoys had already raised their paws. He grimaced. He just wanted to get this over with. With reluctance, he turned his four-poured eyes to one of the envoys and allowed him to speak. Are they hostile? The envoy plainly asked. About that, the Federation of Earth, as they call themselves, is a loose coalition of all the different states and colonies in the Turk sector, or, as the humans have come to call it, the Solar Sector. As I have already said, their greatest weapons is their supreme craftsmanship and technological prowess. They are not inherently hostile, but when provoked, are a force to be reckoned with. They are horrible warriors, but still dangerous. They may seem to contradict myself. They are weak, yet perfect soldiers. Horrible warriors, but perfect soldiers. They don't have the bestial ferocity of the Ngakak, or the strength of the Kithpath. They have their guns, and according to them, that's enough. And I believe them. To summarize this all for you honorable envoys, they are weak, but powerful. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1792. Look before you run. Written by Speedhump23. The Dole Maigru had explored their system. They had expanded their civilization across three planets and moons in their home system. Intersystem ships reached incredible speeds in normal space, making trips to the furthest planet or colony in months. The Theoretical Travel Academy were working on the idea of faster-than-night travel. In their first test, they sent a small probe from the home world to the furthest colony. This colony was almost six light minutes away from home. The probe entered hyperspace and arrived at the colony orbit six seconds later. Sadly, every follow-up test never re-entered normal space. The doll, my Gru, turned away from hyperspace travel and started building generation ships to travel to their nearest neighbors. The LZs followed a similar path. They colonized their system, sent out some generational ships, and then tried hyperspace travel. This time... They had two probes make it back to real space, before nothing ever returned from then on. For hundreds of rotations, every civilization hit the same issue. They may get as many as three tests succeed in hyperspace travel. Then nothing. 
at least most racers did not make the same mistake in the Pardar Rid did. After their first probe succeeded, they packed as much of their civilization into warships as they could. This desperate measure was to escape the rogue black hole that was going to pass near their home system. Only three million were unable to make it back on board. They had built as many ships as possible, but ran out of time. Only the first ship returned to real space, with nothing ever being seen of the other ships. Almost 90% of their civilization was lost. Some races met others in real space, shared stories of their attempts to travel faster than light, and became friends, more enemies. Many rotations later, a slower-than-light galactic federation had been formed. One of the members of the federation was the Voice Aga. They were a peaceful race who specialized in cryogenic systems, which they shared with the only who asked. As a result, they had quite a large space infrastructure around their home system planets. Their officer in charge of local traffic around Homeworld was rather surprised to see an unknown probe ship exit hyperspace almost on top of their planet, scan their system, then disappear back into hyperspace. The report to the planet leaders was seen as interesting, but dismissed. It must have been a fluke that some races' first attempt to travel into hyperspace must have made it to their home system by fluke. If history was anything to judge by, the race who sent that probe would never enter hyperspace again. The Foyet had been in existence for as long as they could remember. Their scientists had suggested that they had evolved from the same of the various clumps of gases which seemed to enjoy swirling around the hills and plains of their existence. They did not seem to live on a planet. In fact, they did not know what a planet was. The skies at night looked the same as they did in the day, as they did not have a sun, nor stars. Their terrain of their home world was made up of fields, hills, rocky outcrops, crystalline impact craters, gas clouds, and buildings of the foyer. Every few generations or more, a new impact crater would appear often without warning. Sometimes the crater could would be small, sometimes it would be massive. Legends tell of a line of craters which stretched across the Etu region. The craters wiped out hundreds of families and full hands worth of mountains were now crystalline holes. Even rarer than crystalline impacts were the melted air. These lines of fire would appear for a brief time, then slowly dissipate. Sometimes the flames would rise to the catch the passing families, and their scars and stories would be passed around the people. Often, these lines with fire would precede a crystalline expansion. The traffic coordinator for the home world had just returned from several days' testimony before the world leaders, when a screen showed another hyperspace displacement in the same spot as the probe. While hyperspace travel did not work, all space workers were trained in the basic principles, so the energy flare showing an object exiting hyperspace was still studied in class. For circumstances, just like the probe a few days ago. This time the flare of light was massive. It almost overloaded the optical scanners. The radar system showed a ship of immense size, and the alarms reserved for slower-than-light raiders entering the system went into overload. System defense ships were scrambled from their launchers. Pirate attacks were not common but a new race entering their system on slower-than-light ships would normally be met with cautious escorts. But this time, there had been no weeks of warning that a ship was coming. The Griffith Drive spooled down as the crew of the Void Voyager, Earthship Void Voyager, a.k.a. Evie, reset scanners and systems for real or non-hit space. The nickname for hyperspace had been gained popularity over the last few years, 
which all crews of all Terran ships taught how to act when traveling. The probe which had entered the system a T-week earlier had scanned the various radio and other spectrums to grab a full system download to allow the big brains back on Earth to plug the language into translators. As a result, the Eevee had started broadcasting messages of greeting, peace, and please don't shoot in all local languages as soon as the ship had stabilized. The fact that the numerous small ships which had started moving towards the Eevee were not shooting was a good sign. A few minutes after a small patrol ship had stopped relative to Eevee, a message was broadcast to them. Alien vessel, welcome to the home system of the Voice Aga. Prepare for a customs, diplomatic, and quarantine ship to arrive shortly. Captain Wales had been to a few systems and first contact so far, and this side of the quadrant seemed to be much more connected than others. So these Voice Aga seemed more amazed by their arrival method than their actual arrival. The standard biopack had been prepared for the Voice Aga scientists to examine to make sure none of the crew of the Eevee were going to pose any issues. The Voice Aga were carbon-based air breathers, and initial probe results did not flag any likely issues. Once the scans and initial diplomatic conversations were passed, Captain Wales and his command crew were invited to the leadership plaza. The planet's leaders wanted to greet them as new friends. The command crew were walking towards the open-air meeting area, having landed via their shuttles nearby. Captain Wales smiled as his navigator had started the now-customary book on how many questions they would face before the hyperspace one was asked. Wales was glad he opted in. His bet was zero other questions. He had seen the lines of leaders and scientists waiting for them as they flew overhead and their way to the spaceport nearby. The facial expressions might be alien to them, but even he could see the look of expectation on some of those faces. The prime voice of the Voice Uggers leadership group had not even finished her greeting when one of the scientists had yelled out his question. The stunned silence was broken only by a whispered curse from the navigator, as he promised to pay the bet when he returned to the ship. Captain Wales smiled and stepped forward. The response was well rehearsed by this point. 172 local revolutions ago, 107 of Terran ones, a scientific study group on our home world had worked out how to access hyperspace. The decision to send a probe to test the new drive system had been unanimously supported around the system. Many people wanted to test the probe by sending a supply ship to the new Pluto colony, which was always in dire straits as supply ships took almost a year to get there. Others wanted to send a probe to Alpha Centauri to see what was there. The decision to just send a probe into hyperspace and take a look was a suggestion of a grad student working in the team. Nye Griffith had suggested, isn't it better to look before we run? As a result, the probe had very slowly entered into hyperspace and was loaded with cameras, recorders of all types, and even a few transmitters. A suggested test was to see if radio or sound waves worked in the same as in hyperspace. There were two surprises after the probe disappeared. The first was the transmitter seemed to be working, with the probe sending back the very strange broadcast. The second surprise was when the broadcast was decoded. If it was not for the fact that the first transmission back was going to be recording of the great Carl Sagan's pale blue dot speech, it would have been an almost impossible to realize what was happening. The transmission was supposed to be about three and a half minutes long and would allow the team on Earth to check unknown transmission against the environment the probe was in. Strangely, though, the transmission took over two weeks to finish. 
the computers managed to speed it up by a massive factors to return it to normal time, and the scientists realized that time is moving much slower in hyperspace. When the speed factor worked out, the probe was sent the message to compress and submit the data it received so fast. The first vision received showed a pale green environment with strange shapes and bursts of light moving across the camera's view. This surprised the various scientists. They had been expecting a void. Even greater surprise was the appearance of beings looking at the probe with obvious intelligence and interest. The probe had been accorded local hours' worth of data in the hyperspace realm and showed the aliens cautiously milling around the probe. The probe was a recording light, radio, and electromagnetic sound waves. They had space in the probe, so they added a microphone for the fun of it. And even gas sampling. As a result, the data sent back to Earth allowed them to realize the beings were speaking to each other about the probe. It took a while for humanity to be able to communicate back and forth with the hyperspace beings called the Foyet. The Foyet eventually told us of the lions and the fire of the crystallized eruptions in their lands, and it did not take us long to realize that these were craft traveling through hyperspace, and everything making it to their log target space by chance, burning the air as they went past, or hitting some terrain, or passing a gas cloud, fauna, or family, or even a line of fire from a previous transit. With such a force that matter was crystallized and left as a permanent roadblock to any future travel. The joy of the Foriet expressed to learn that they were not alone in the creation, and that the Terrans would work on ways to stop the lines of fire and eruptions from afflicting the lands in the future, resulted in them helping the Terrans work out a better way to route their ships through the lands of the Foriet. The end result was, the humans were now going round to each of the races which had tried to enter hyperspace, and pop in to say hi to whoever was there. The true explanation of the entry points of the lines of the fire was now known, and the scars in the land now showed where the race had entered the ship into hyperspace. As always, though, the probe was sent through first, and the probe sent to the system occupied by the Padra was able to start a rescue of the remaining population, who had fled their system on slower-than-light ships as the black hole approached. The Galactic Federation now had access to faster-than-night travel, and were able to safely spread out across the galaxy. There were even several brave members of the Foriet who had asked to travel to non-hit space to see what stars looked like. These travelers from hit space often looked like statues of gas as they seemed to not be moving, and they often needed escorts to protect them from accidents. The fact that they moved so slow continued to confuse some scientists, as they could not understand how hyperspace beings would move so slow, and the answer from the famous Foriet comedian was, have you been to their realm? There is nothing to see. So why rush? The Foriet representative on Earth was often heard, after his speech was sped up, to express his appreciation that the undergrad Nygriffin had been listened to, and humanity had look before you run. End of story. I would quickly like to thank our tier 5 patrons and channel members. Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, It's Difficult to Pronounce, Lord Arishakal, Dragzoon, WRE, and Arcadian. Thank you very much.